Hello, this is DJ Poolhouse, host of Here Comes the Backlash. Welcome back to another episode of The Unsilencing, my special mini-series devoted to an alternative history, alternative voices, and alternative timeline of the early days of the HIV AIDS crisis. Thanks for your support in this series. I've gotten a lot of great feedback and I encourage everyone who hasn't already to go check out previous episodes in this series featuring Ed and Tony, two incredible gentlemen who shared their stories with me and my fabulous co-host Nick, my partner on this series. This episode is really special to me. So I'm just giving you this little setup here so that you can have a little context for this evening's guest uh, who's going to give his own testimony about the early days of the HIV crisis and kind of support this. There's this lost history, right? There's a lost history, uh, not just because so many of the uh, men died tragically during the AIDS crisis, which the level of death is staggering, especially when compared to something like COVID-19. And I do want to acknowledge that because we do compare sort of thematics uh, between AIDS and COVID in this episode but on a real level like aids was way more devastating uh, on a like a social level on an interpersonal level in terms of death right and uh so we lost a lot of the stories there but there's also a lot of things i think uh, as man parish my guest this evening will allude to uh, but there's a lot of people i think out there who don't find fault in myself or Nick or, or my guest, Man Parrish, for speculating or asking questions about this very solid hypothesis supporting the alternative origin of AIDS, which is that it's lab origin from government-funded cancer research that took place in the post-war period in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, tonight, Nick will be walking our guest through some of the uh, history and getting his reaction in real time. And I think it's really interesting and uh, an important exercise that I was so uh, fortunate to be a part of and very pleased to bring you this evening. Man Parrish, my guest, is a superstar. This was a very big get for Backlash and for the unsilencing. And I can't be more thrilled to have uh, been a part of it. And I can't be more grateful to Mr. Man Parrish, underground electro superstar, for his time and his uh, candor and just providing so many incredible, rich stories. Man Parish may not be like a household name to everyone, but in the house of pool, he certainly is. The underground scene of the early 1980s, New York uh, and, and worldwide, uh, kind of known sometimes as Electro, is something that's really dear to me. It's truly the energy that kind of powers me it comes from early 80s New York records made with uh, powerful 808 machines and futurism and, and color and blending uh, of genres. If you want, you can go back and listen to my remarks on Electro music in episode 25 of Here Comes the Back. Clash where I gush to low IQ moron uh, and we wax uh, poetic about the lost era of the breakbeat. Man Parish is a pioneer in that sound. He is the producer and performer of songs like Hip Hop and Bebop, Don't Stop, uh, Boogie Down Bronx, Heat Stroke. His songs uh, influence hip hop. They influence dance music and, and club music as well. He was uh, renowned in this kind of underground uh, art world 
that kind of synthesize uh, lots of different cultures. There's a whole history there that is known amongst the adherents, amongst the disciples very well, but maybe hasn't really been told more broadly to the world. So it, it feels like a secret history at times. It was part of the inspiration for my own zine, Backlash, back in the early 2000s. Uh, this style of music inspired a lot of the uh, music and stuff that was going on back then at the time that was called Electro Clash was sort of inspired a lot by the kind of work that Man Parish uh, got up to, in the, especially in the 1980s. He did records like Hip Hop Bebop, Don't Stop, which was uh, a crossover record. It was a hip hop smash. It is part of the iconography of early 80s, or Sonic, I guess, the Sonic legacy of early 80s uh, hip hop to this day. Uh, he's a, a pop art icon in his own right. He was given the name Man Parish by none other than Andy Warhol. He was managed by Tony DeFries, who was the manager of David Bowie. He really is an icon, as you'll hear. He came across the paths of, of many uh, an 80s superstar or his fellow superstars in the nightlife underworld of New York City. So this period is really influential to me. I really uh, know the history pretty well. Man Parish, in fact, is written about in an early issue of, of Backlash, the zine, back in the early 2000s in my piece, The Secret history of electro i was uh, on vacation on the atlantic shore reading a book called life and death on the new york city dance floor 1980 to 1983 by tim lawrence this is a book that's kind of documenting this entire early 80s period that i am describing that i'm so uh, interested and fascinated by uh, kind of the electro or post-disco uh, period where there's just so many incredible records and and styles and and uh crossovers and and scenes that kind of emerge that are uh so influential to today's culture, but are really not acknowledged or maybe understood by the everyday, you know, pitchfork reader or whatever. So Tim Lawrence's book is excellent. It's super detailed. It goes into a rich color, full history, featuring all kinds of voices from the uh, early 80s period. Man Parish turns up in a section about the AIDS crisis that, uh, you know, of course, inevitably turns up towards the end of this great tome. In this section, they're talking about Klaus Nomi. Now, Klaus Nomi is uh, another kind of underground star. He's a little bit more, I would say, avant-garde, but a very renowned and talented performer who's, I guess, underground pop artist in his own way as well. Man Parish says to Tim Lawrence, quote, I had to have this vaccine, and they told me that if I refused, the social worker would come and get me, he remembers. Parrish was relieved to have evaded the treatment. Quote, everyone had gonorrhea. It was a fuck fest. There was a huge, huge push for this vaccine in the gay community. Whether the vaccine weakened your immune system or helped you to get the virus quicker, I don't know. But everyone I knew who had this vaccine died. Klaus was one of the guys who got the vaccine, unquote. <clears throat> One of the first public figures to succumb to the virus, Nomi, passed away in August of 83. So that story really stuck out to me uh, as I read it in 2021. Uh, that was before or as I was kind of preparing to go on my, uh, I guess, pool house journey and had begun to uh, launch this podcast and, and platform Backlash. All of that kind of led me to Nick, my collaborator on this series, and his incredible uh, research that he's collated and, and conducted on the kind of lab origin theory, which is thorough and comprehensive and uh, not refuted really by anyone as far as I know. It's only kind of censored and 
dismissed. And so we began this series. We started talking to these gentlemen uh, about their stories. And I kind of recalled this anecdote from Man Parish. Uh, so I looked him up on and found him on YouTube, was able to get his email and sent a, a letter, a famous pool house letter to Mr. Man Parish, underground 80s pop star. And he wrote back almost immediately. It was quite amazing. And we quickly got this interview together in late 2023. I am so pleased to present Mr. Parrish and his story. I think you will find him electrifying, riveting. Uh, it's body rocking entertainment through kind of a dark and scary time in many ways. But despite the kind of rough and tumble or edgy nature of the times, contrast it, you know, with the safetyism and the kind of clinical and uh, HRFI, the human resourcesified nature of our society today. And think about it in those terms. That's how I reflect upon some of this. Think about it, of course, in, in human terms. He's going to share a lot of stories of, of life and death on the dance floor. I think it's incredible and fascinating. I couldn't be more pleased to present this episode of The Unsilencing featuring the one and only Man Parish. podcast is this a movie what are you doing sure yeah yeah i mean it's uh, mostly audio format so i do a podcast that i started uh based on like a zine I, I kind of like a little like you know self uh published periodical that i was doing spun it into a oh. podcast uh, a couple about a year ago the co- podcast the, the concept there is just kind of talking to talking to fellow internet anons that uh we right. found ourselves in since covid kind of in like a, a new space right so a lot of these people I, I speak with are kind of maybe more left-leaning people who kind of uh feel politically homeless in some ways feel like the covid regime really reshape things so that's a lot of the conversations i have with people um that brought me to nick by, by you, but, uh, you don't even take me down that path you know we what i mean yeah well we we, okay. we, but we, we can we can then no problem no if problem. there's anywhere you don't want to go you're certainly uh we, we won't hold you to it but uh but it, well, there's well, a well, let me put it this way I, I i do a lot of interviews and somebody asked me what do i think about COVID, and i said it's aids 2.0 i've been through this i've been through lockdowns i've been through you know paranoia and all that kind of stuff so COVID for me i've already had just rehearsal a long time ago Bang, we're into it. Look, there you go. Hit well, the ground running. You share, I think, a perspective there with, with myself and Nick, at least on a thematic level, right? There's a lot of really common themes, um, which is why like, I started researching or looking into this idea of like HIV and where did it come from. Uh, Nick, Nick's much more steeped in this uh, topic than, than I am, but I was really blessed to find Nick and his research and brought him on my show, got to talk to him. And then, yeah, we started this other series that we call uh, The Unsilencing, just talking to people uh, from the early days of of HIV crisis, who kind of support uh, alternative timeline, alternative theories about uh, where it came from, um, and just really just telling their stories. It's not specifically just about like their relationship to HIV. It's kind of like just uh, about the times. Like, what was it like? What did you see? What did well, you first hear? Of all, I, I don't know why I'm not positive, right? I mean, I was the horror of horrors. I had records out on the radio, but I never told my friends at the glory hole that I was man parish, you know? So it was like, uh, it, 
why I'm not positive. And after what we're going to talk about, uh, the, the vaccine that happened and stuff, is my doctor said, you're probably immune to it, which they thought some people are still. And we want to, the government wants to like test you and take your blood and poke you with things. I'm like, no fucking way. <laughs> I can use dirty words, right? On your podcast, it won't. Absolutely. Okay, take- Yourself. I forgot- yeah, I forgot to ask. Yeah, I usually ask your brain to be. So, um, uh, 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 I didn't go for the study, right? But I mean, lifestyle back then, gay lifestyle, it was in a non-digital form. So today it's grinder and scruff and, you know, friends with benefits and hookup and all that. Back then you had to get your ass in your car or get on the subway and go to a cruising spot, which was either a bar, uh, a bathhouse. And at that time, I think there were 10 in the city, eight or 10 of them in New York City, which is pretty incredible. My first bathhouse, I was 14 years old and I went to the Continental Baths and saw Bette Midler perform and her unknown piano player, Barry Manlow. So I know bathhouses, you know. Uh, there were cruising spots like the trucks, which we can talk about. And along the West Side Highway, there were abandoned beers where I'd see people like Files Nomi and other famous people getting it on. But it was considered socially acceptable behavior. So uh, uh, um, the incidence of spreading a virus like AIDS was, I mean, it was ripe, right? And I often wonder if that was the perfect uh, uh, Petri dish to introduce a virus because you'd say, you want to get together tonight? No, I'm going to go to the baths instead. You know, I'm going to go to the glory hole, which was a club, which we could talk about. Or um, if I went to go visit you, I'd leave an hour early. And then in Manhattan, all the train stations had glory holes in the men's room. I'm going to do a series about this uh, uh, on YouTube, New York City Underground. But it was acceptable social behavior. So what may seem strange to people now, everybody did because you were just, yeah, yeah all right, you're going to go cruising. You're, you're going to go get laid. You're going to go to the park at, and the rambles and go, you know, have fun. In fact, bathhouses were such a culture that all across the United States, there was um, uh, uh, bathhouses, the club baths. And you can go from New York to Philadelphia to LA to Miami and stay at a bathhouse for 12 or $20 a night for a 24-hour pass, and you'd have a hotel room, a gay-friendly environment, and get laid. So socially, it was a lot different. You know, a lot, sex was open. And I think we have to start with that so you can understand how things progressed. Being a whore was a compliment. If somebody <laughs> called you a whore, you were good at what you did. You know what I mean? Like, oh, he's got a reputation. He's a whore. Oh, I want to hook up with him because he's got experience. Now it's a totally different thing, you know. Manny, can I ask you, in that period, was there a big, what was the distinction like between like um, homosexual and heterosexual? Because you're kind of talking about how it's like in the culture. Very, very, very hard line. So, yeah. um, you crazy kids today, I mean, are lucky. We we marched, we we rewrited, uh, act up radical fairies, you know, uh, silence equal death, which were AIDS things, but they're also gay things. So, you the reason you had a clone back then, if you look at old gay things, guys had construction shoes and jeans and a flannel shirt and a handlebar mustache. You did that for safety because you wanted to blend in in the hetero world. Um, you couldn't be trans back then. Uh, th- th- there's a great uh, thing on Netflix about Marsha P. Johnson, who was not a friend, but I used to see her all the time and buy her coffee and food. She was a homeless, uh, mentally damaged or whatever it is, gay person, but the community supported her and she was killed and it's a hot. 
terrible story, but you should watch it if, if you're interested. But uh, there were gay spots. And the reason they were gay bars, gay restaurants, gay cruises, gay clothing stores, uh, gay travel agencies, because you lived in this bubble. And if you lived outside of the bubble, you could get hurt if you were effeminate or you would get what were they called, you know, canceled. I remember going on a cruise ship in the 70s with my boyfriend and we sat at a table and it was like this family and I have nothing against families. I live in the most family oriented place now, but back then, and the first thing is, so where are your wives? And we were like, oh, um, uh, 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 they're home and this is a boy's trip. And she was like, oh, okay. And the next night we were at a table of six or seven people and we were the only ones there because they asked to be moved. But this was typical, right? You were called faggot. It wasn't some earth shattering, you know, fuck off faggot. It wasn't this, oh my God, you know, I'm being, you know, my triggered. It was an acceptable <laughs> way of life. So there was a very hardcore line between gay and straight. And, you know, you had gay friendly people, you had fag hags, which were women who hung around with guys, but you went to gay bars, you ate at gay restaurants, you had gay friends, and you went to gay cruising spots and your life was more or less complete and you were closeted at work. Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you'd lose your job and there were no protections like there are today. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you were called faggot or or, or, or mumbled behind, uh, under the breath. You know, so, oh, you know, you know what, Manny? He's a, you know, he likes boys. You know what I mean? Oh well, not around my children. You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and there was that kind of rumor too. I bring that up because it was like it was perceived that uh, uh, all gay people were pedophiles or perverts. I mean, I know gay pedophiles. I, I'm a victim. I was in a child pedophile ring when I ran away from home at 14. So I mean, there are, but they're straight pedophiles. They're gay perverts and straight perverts. You know, go to the mine shaft like I did. You'll see perverts. You know what I mean? So um, it's just as balanced in the gay community, straight community. But that was the stuff that was always brought up and. You can't be gay or you shouldn't be gay because it's just a bunch of sick weirdos and fucked up people. Which is why I was gay, because it was wonderful. <laughs> perverts, and perverts and the mentally ill, how fabulous is that? <laughs> I, I love it. Man, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Cool. Oh, I was going to say, uh, I was just going to say, yeah, why don't you give like a short thumbnail sketch, maybe of just who you are or how you came to be in the center of New York, I guess, at this period of time. Like, how did you come to become a... A vibrant young person. So, I, 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 I lived in Brooklyn and I went to Manhattan uh, to high school performing arts where they did the movie Fame. So I got a good look of what life is like outside of Brooklyn. And it was right in the middle of 42nd Street. So at that time, it was um, black exploitation movies, pimps in, in, you know, fake fur jackets, uh, hookers that were completely naked except for a little bikini and a fur coat covering their tits. I mean, it was wonderful. It was so colorful and so fabulous. Um, I had... My, my mother became increasingly mentally ill and schizophrenic and was violent towards me, tying me to a radiator, turning up the steam, you know, throwing me out in the snow. And in those days, you didn't have um, child services. You were just a crazy family on the block. And I had gone to a doctor, and I have an NDA. I can't talk about who, but I was basically sexually abused for three years. And by the time I got to 13, my mother's illness got so, so, so bad that I decided to leave and run away from home to survive. And in doing so, I wound up in the middle of Manhattan. I meet this guy. I said I was 14. I was tall. I said I was 18. And he was 23. And at night, he would go to work. And I'm like, where is he going? And he wouldn't tell me. And I followed him one day, and it was like, 
famous Continental Bass, and that's how I got in. I remember squeezing the security guard's dick and told him I'll blow him later if he lets me in for free. <laughs> and he didn't. I never blew him, but I got in for free. <laughs> you know, so I got at 14, I, I found bathhouses, and, and those days there were a few backroom bars and the Rambles cruising area. By that, I met other artists, other musicians that were gay. And then it's like, you know, there's a club downtown and there's this spot and that spot. And since I was mentally non-functioning, Ter terribly abused, mm -hmm. I was able to, um, I went out every night. Mm -hmm. So New York City back then was not a big thing. It was a, a business city and there were a couple of rock and roll clubs. Disco wasn't even happening then. So there were two rock and roll clubs. You were either into rock and roll jazz, classical music, and basically that, or country, you know, so there was no dance stuff. So you kind of hung out with other musicians and I became that kid that's in the clubs every night. When disco or dance music started up, of course, we all ran to something new. And I was the first one there and the last one out. I used to have purple hair and a skirt. <laughs> and they would let me in because I was a freak, you know. And this is 1978, you know. And people would say, that's your natural color? And I go, yeah. Or, hey, come here, honey. Come over here. Let me take a picture because they're not going to be back in Texas that people in New York have blonde, you know, purple hair. You know, so... Uh, uh, Funny story, I remember going to Dance Interior in the 80s. I was living on 38th Street between 5th and 6th Avenue. Joey Arias and four, four of the people were my roommates. And I had purple hair and a, a the top was butch and the bottom was femme. So I had a white shirt with a tie. And then I'd have like a yellow, a, 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 a red skirt on with canary yellow leotards and blue capizios. And that time, 42nd Street was really dangerous. And I remember walking from 38th to 36th Street, I think it was, and this group of thugs came around the corner. And the, the street was empty. And I'm on the 8th Avenue side, uh, 7th Avenue side. They came around the 8th, whatever it was, there was a block away in there, kicking over garbage cans and punching the, uh, you know, the, the gates and making noise. They see me, and I see them, and I thought, my God, this is it. I'm going to get killed. And they got really quiet and they walked on the other side of the street past me like, what the fuck is that? You know what I mean? So I, I made a lot of noise in the uh, in the club world. I was also the only kid with a synthesizer and a drum machine. So New York City came to me, go to Manny's house. He'll do you a demo and he'll make you a record for 50 bucks because I was starving. So I became the... Uh, uh, um, uh, the club horror, that 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 tired piece of furniture that's there every night. You know what I mean? So that that was me. And through that I met a lot of people, including Andy Warhol, which gave me the name Man Parish. And that's a whole other story. But um, you know. Uh, yeah, I, I, I I've been laid, relayed, parlayed, and souffled. <laughs> and while that was going on and I had my records out, I was going to bathhouses and the piers and you know. Uh, so I had this double lifestyle where I was man parish, this guy who does music, but then I was that sex pig who went to the, you know, went to the mind shaft or something like that. And people did, some people knew because they'd go, I know, I know who you are. And I'm like, thank you, <laughs> but you don't have to keep it a secret. <laughs> so I had this double lifestyle, which was kind of really cool. And I would see Mark Amon from Soft Cell. I would see uh, Steve Bronsky, Freddie Mercury tried to pick me up the eagle one day and i didn't believe it was freddie mercury i thought it was some queen with buck teeth that was trying to be freddie mercury and i'm that's freddie what's that i said that's freddie yeah yeah and, and my sister was into queen and i wasn't and 
you know, I'm giving him shade and the whole bar's like, oh, who's this queen? Like giving her shade, you know what I mean? And I remember going back, he gave me his number and I went back over to the Eagle that was at the Spike. And where were you? There's some queen over at the bar giving Freddie Mercury drama. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> that was really Freddie Mercury? He gave me his number and I threw it away. And I remember my friends ran out and they look at in the street on the cars trying to find out where I threw away his number and stuff like that. So life was a lot different. It was very colorful. You could be an artist. You can be different underground, not above ground. And it was okay. You know, now you're weird if you don't follow, you know, corporate, you know, things and stuff like that. But back then, there was a lot more sexual freedom, creative freedom, and individuality. You know, now there's a big fight with trans. Back then, it's like, all right, you're cool. You know, you don't have to fight, just be, be you. So uh, that's how I was involved in New York, and I was involved in many clubs I would do uh, uh, sound installations and stuff like that. Uh, Museum of Modern Art. There was a club called Club 57 in New York, which was 57 St. Mark Street. It was kind of like a cafe society, I want to say. We weren't intending to be it, but it was like we didn't want to go to Dance Interior, you know, because it was fil it was too busy. So we kind of made our own little club and uh, rented out the basement of this um, of this uh, uh, church, uh, this Polish church on, on St. Mark's. I think the church is still there. Uh, and they needed the money. And we would just like, you know, set up a couple of beers and show some movies and I'd do sound installations. And then MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art, uh, decided they were gonna do a piece on it. And Keith Haring was there, John michel Basquiat, uh, artists like Kenny Sharp, which you may or may not know myself. Mm -hmm. And uh, MoMA decided to do a thing on it. And suddenly I go to MoMA, I mean, they invited me and I, and I said, you know, in MoMA, and the curator comes down and says, you know, I'm a big fan, just want to let you know, you have three pieces in MoMA's permanent collection. And I'm like, wait a minute, what? So all that, it wasn't work, but somehow or another, all that got recognized and kind of paid off in a really nice way, not financially, but career-wise, you know? So not that I was Mr. New York, but I was Ms. New York. <laughs> well, you're a tourist, aren't you? Yeah, I'm a tourist. Yeah, so it's a I'm a tourist with a with a uh, uh, a Scorpio rising, which is you know sex pig publicly, and then uh, a Capricorn moon in the second house. That's cut, that's conjunct, which means my money flows, and you know I'll suddenly get a windfall, and then I'll starve for ten years, kind of thing. So, yeah. Can can we go to Fire Island, please? To Fabulous. the moment when you got away from Bob, when uh, that angel intervened with you and you had a dance with her and she said, come yeah, and see yeah, me yeah, tomorrow. Yeah. Um, I've had experiences in my life that you think you're just getting through a situation or you've just made it through a pinch, whatever. And then you turn around a little later and realize that you had angels. And well, I, well, my, I, my realization I, I, didn't happen until 50 years later when I realized well. he was a pedophile and we used to go to other cities well when i ran away from home i met this guy bob which you're mentioning and he was fucking nuts uh i i i i was cruising in the rambles and as a 14 year old kid you know who's going to pick up a 14 year old kid but a 32 year old pedophile right you know everybody's like that's a kid you know and 
And I didn't look 14. I mean, I, you know, I was a little cherub, you know, with rosy cheeks, but I was tall, so I may have been 18. And in those days, not that it was socially acceptable, but those were called chicken harks. And you were chicken. You were fresh spring chicken, you know what I mean? And that's a chicken hark. And it was like kind of socially acceptable. It wasn't considered pedophilia. And this guy was nuts. I mean, he literally would tell us that the space people were coming. That's when Eric and Fawn and Danikin Chariot of the Guards was what book was happening where they with the um aliens built the pyramids, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, uh um uh he uh, uh he believed in that and he'd say, get in the room, I've got to communicate, and he'd turn the stereo on static and start talking to the radio. And I'm in the other room going, This is bullshit. But after a year, you get Stockholm syndrome, like, okay, he is talking to them and keep a bag packed under the bed because the spaceship's gonna land in the middle of Central Park and with his ring is going to flash and we're going to get a signal. I mean, he believed all this and I got sucked into this, right? So we used to go out to Fire Island with another pedophile, Bob, and he had a he had a Lincoln Continental or a caddy and he there'd be two or three boys in there. Uh, before that, uh, um, the Bob that I was with, he would, we would go from state to state, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and there'd be a guy with two boys there and Bob would bring me and his boy, or we'd go to Philadelphia or d- down to Washington, DC and out to Fire Island. And I thought, growing up, well, this is what the gay community does, right? I mean, you're a gay kid and they take you in from being out in the raw elements and they take care of you and they just happen to be older, you know, but, you know, they're looking out for you. And of course, she's got friends and they take care of their boys too until you're old enough to get out on your own. So at the time, I didn't think this was anything weird. Out in Fire Island, we used to go and there'd be a house full of young boys and the two Bobs, and they were in their 30s and 50s. And we'd go to the um, the Monster, which was a big place in New York, but it started out on Fire Island next to the Ice Palace in Cherry Grove. And we were dancing to songs like I'll Always Love My Mama and Rock the Boat and Barry White, you know, and that's when they first came out. So I'm talking, you know, 70s in here. And... I remember dancing on the dance floor and a lot of street people would come over because in those days, if you went to a gay club, it was cutting edge music. You know, now it's fucking tired Mariah Carey or whatever the fuck they're playing, you know. But uh, back then, it was really cool cutting edge music. So we'd go and listen to music and dance. And I remember dancing on the dance floor and cut in and people would dance and three or four people. And there was this woman, Dottie. She, she was in the straight community and had two or three boys and her and her husband, but mostly her, she'd go out for the night and go dancing with the, you know, with the fags and stuff. And I said, what do you do? She goes, I'm an astrologer. And I said, oh, astrology, you know about the space people. She goes, what are you talking about? And I said, well, um, you know, Bob's not an astrologer, but we, we too, wink, wink, know about that secret, the space people that are coming. She goes, is that what he's telling you? And I said, yeah, you know, you're an astrologer, you know about that. She says, can you get away from him tomorrow and come to my boat? She was in um, uh, 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 something Haven, Sales Haven. It's the next community below uh, the Cherry Grove. She said, don't tell him you're coming and I want to talk to you. And I gave her the whole story on her boat. She said, she said, darling, this man is dangerous. And she said, I'm really worried. And I want you to give me your mother's number. And I'm going to try to get you home. And I'm like, I'm not going home. I'm not going home. But she talked me into it. And she said, like, you know, uh, in three weeks on a Saturday, the doorbell is going to ring at noon. And it's going to because I kept in touch with her. Uh, the doorbell is going to ring at noon and your parents are going to come and get you. And they did. And it turned into this whole explosive thing. 
He used to lie to me and tell me this is what grooming and pedophilia does. You don't need your parents anymore because I got legal papers that now state that I'm your legal guardian, so you never have to talk to them or go, you know, be with them again. And I'm 14. So, uh, you know, that create between the parents stuff being sexually abused by a doctor for three years and, uh, and then this guy, I mean, jokingly, we said, I was definitely queer bait, right? <laughs> hey, pretty little boy, you know, uh, yeah, pull my, pull your pants down and I'm your friend, you know, kind of thing. Um, uh, I didn't realize until seven years ago, a friend of mine, we were talking and she talked about how she was used by her father and her, and her brother and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, that night I started having dreams. I've always had dreams of like men, a man walking down the hallway, a dark shadow would come at me and I'd scream and wake up. And then I just started remembering all of this. And weirdly enough, a week later, the hospital that was associated with this doctor contacted me and said, we think you may, may have been inappropriately examined by this doctor and we want to make things better. So that's the Bob story. And Dottie was an angel. I stayed friends with her until she passed. She was like a mother to me. Uh, 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 I didn't have, I was adopted and my mother was mentally off. So mm -hmm. uh, um, I didn't have a mother figure and she became that. And, 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 and she was very loving and kind and checked in on me. So, you know, extended family is important, right? Big deal, you know, and, and, and in my, the child in crisis, it was really important, really good. Did you uh, collect any other mothers in the course of your life? By the way, I'm adopted too. Oh, okay, great. So then you know, I tell people being adopted, you know, people, natural born people have a genetic connection with their parents and a hug is from your mother. There's a genetic thing that you or I can't feel. When there's dysfunction in the family, I'm sure you had love, but mine was more like I was living at my aunt's house or a friend's house or you know, a surrogate mother. So I didn't get a lot of hugs, but when the dysfunction was there, I was always like, what was it like on the other side if I wasn't adopted, so on and so on. I did mm -hmm. have other people, and one of them is Cherry Vanilla, uh, who's a, I've known her now 51 years, just went to her 80th birthday. Um, she has been another person that was there for me a lot you know, introduced me to Bowie and, 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 and took me around and all this kind of stuff. So, it, you know, it was a whole other side story. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, extended families were really, really important. And then later on in life, I'm in therapy now because part of my settlement with this hospital is that I got some money, but I had to, my lawyer insisted that I get therapy. And now I'm sort of coming of age, right? And the mm -hmm. therapy really helped me work through through a, a lot of this stuff and 
um, I realized a lot of the things that I did, a lot of the neuroses, a lot of the fears were because of trauma. And at 14, 15, 20 years old, I couldn't really figure it out. You know what I mean? Uh, I had uh, two months of high school and got thrown out. Uh, and, 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 and that's the brain I had to survive the world in. So, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, I did have extended family was very important in the gay world because a lot of people, especially when AIDS came around, um, they would want to go home to the Midwest or wherever they were, you know, want to go home and parents would literally say, Oh, you can't come home. You have AIDS. What's the, what's, what are the neighbors going to think? <laughs> you know, and they abandoned their kids and they had to rely on family. And one of the stories I've talked tell about is God's love. We deliver. And I, I don't remember if it's Katzenberg or, or Geffen started, um, uh, a, a lot of these guys got sick and we'll talk about AIDS and, you know, the virus and all that kind of stuff. But a lot of these guys got so sick and they were on fourth floor walk-ups. They couldn't come down and feed themselves or go shopping. So they bought a whole bunch of ice cream trucks and these guys would sit at home and make, you know, breakfast, lunch, or dinner, one or two meals and put them in takeout containers and drive the trucks around. And they would find, you know, reach out in the community and find who needed people when the government didn't, when, you know, there was no GMHC or any of those sort of, you know, uh, organizations. And it was very, very grassroots, but that's when it was mm -hmm. called grid. And we can talk about that too. So extended okay. family is incredibly important in gay life back then, but there was one thread amongst all of us that we were all somehow or another damaged. Right. So we were all living on the edge. I mean, I was 14, 15, 16 years old and people were in their 20s, 30s and 40s. But age was not a social a strata then, you know, you you're, you know, out on the street alone. And I was homeless for a long time, too. But they were. 20 year olds and 30 and 40 year olds, you know, and vice versa, you know, um, older people would try to help or be around younger people because of they were friendly or cool or needed help. I, I, I think the extended family people that were dysfunctional themselves, and I used to call it living in the shadows, you know, I lived on 38th Street between 5th and 6th Avenue in a loft and I'd look out the window and people were going to work every day and traffic and business and I felt so I was there was a completely other world. So I mm -hmm. couldn't go out and get a job because it was just something alien to me because of my damage and dysfunction. But so were a lot of other people within our little extended family. It was really important for that. So um, uh, some people went to work every day. Uh, one guy worked at a, um, uh, a stock brokerage and he was like a vice president. And the other one was like a, an artist that, you know, blew farts and water for art. Performance art. I mean, it, it was all over the fucking place. You know what I mean? Or, 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 you know, uh, somebody who worked during the day, but was doing drag at night, you know, I mean, it was, it was ages and stratas all over the place because that was irrelevant. You were not judged on your bank account. You were not judged on, uh, uh, um, you know, your job. You were judged on who who were you as a person, and you know, even if you were an asshole, you were probably damaged. But you know, it, 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 you weren't judged like you're judged today, so to speak.
so pool you can tell uh that uh this this amazing survivor is a is a starburst thinker he can inhabit and teleport into different spaces and have all kinds of constellations of of data and and stories that are that are in and of themselves important to examine not to just like trying to be the american tourist in europe and see all the countries in one trip um so um can you Manny, put that in an email so i can put that at the top of my facebook page <laughs> manny let's if we if we all decide to move into a treehouse and solve mysteries then that's okay let's just go with it but um manny i think there's going to be if you remember uh stretch armstrong your friends yeah. probably had one and eventually he would tear and the goo would come out um i don't want the goo to come out today on you uh i think that Poole has really <laughs> fascinated. He is a total fanboy on um, so much of of who you are, what you've experienced, what you've created, what you've done. And I'm here to be a truth teller and just sort of just plumb your depths in the area yeah, that sure. I specialize, which is the story about what happened before HIV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like, well, uh, yeah, I really am chomping at the bit to get to the heptavax or like this vaccine story that you shared, uh, Manny, because that was like, it's so striking still. It's still, still so shocking to me that I was able to read that in a book. Like, honestly, like <laughs> with all the stuff that we've been uh, researching and studying, all this information that uh, Nick is really versed in, it's it's not easy to find, right? It's really hard to find some of these stories. So like, it felt so because, serendipitous. Because most of the people are dead. Because most of those people are dead. 100%. That's why there are very few survivors and some of the survivors that are there are afraid that they're going to wind up on a CIA list, so they won't talk about mm -hmm. it because mm -hmm. of, you know, p p uh, political shame and social shame, but I lost too many people, 30, 40 people, so I have no issues with it, and fuck them if they can't take a joke, you know, that's the way I look at it, so I'm willing to talk about it. And I could be crazy, and I could be wrong, and we can all be wrong, and that's fine, but sure. it has to be talked about, right? It has to be discussed, and I'm glad you guys are bringing this up to the surface. It'll either get dismissed, and it's nothing or wait a minute we have something here let's look a little deeper and that's why i'm here because i want to know myself there's this tragic loss right there's all these uh, voices who we can never hear from right they're all gone then there's this other piece of it which is like uh you're right nick and i could be wrong you could be wrong but no one's telling us we're wrong they're telling us we don't exist they're telling us this story cannot be told you would not believe like what even just with my little fledgling podcast what i uh have to deal with sometimes to get the stories out so um just it felt just so uh i, I, I don't think feel. a lot of this is as hidden as you think within the perhaps gay not, community because not. i've heard this from other gay people but you want to talk about it publicly no i don't want to risk my job or i don't want to get in trouble but you know and i thought about this before we got on if you're ready to dismiss it if you're listening to this and that's okay you know you have that right but if you weren't there if you weren't 18 years old in, in, in the sexual you know gay community in new york or san francisco then that's a, you, you have your opinions, but you got to listen. You know, you got to at least listen. And then when this podcast is over, however it's edited, then you make up your, your decision. So I'm from that school. Like, I'm not Democrat. I'm not Republican. And I'm not this. I'm not that. I'll listen to it. And then I'm not Jewish, Catholic, Muslim, you know, Buddhist. I take what I can out of it and put my own stuff together. So if you're listening, please at least 
listen <laughs> and then decide you're preaching the pool house gospel man this is exactly you're the right person to talk to i'm an old hippie i grew up with hippies you know <laughs> when i was 14 that was the end of the hippie era you know what i mean and so i went to david bowie's house and it was like a hippie house and not like Starman with plexiglass and you know smoke machines and stuff but i grew up with hippies so it's like you know i, I kind of carried I'm a Buddhist, if anything, you know what I mean? I mean, I carry these these, these very earthy kind of things because that's where I am right now. Mm. And God, I hope the fuck it's my last time here. <laughs> wow. I don't want to do reincarnation right now. <laughs> my fanboy stuff, you know, you mentioned continental bats. I would ask, did you meet Frankie Knuckles? You're talking about Canceteria. I guess I'll just set this up. I guess, uh, yeah, you were... Uh, Quoted in a book, it's by Tim Lawrence. It's called Life and Death on the New York Dance Floor. It's a follow-up to his really, really excellent history on uh, what they call Disco One. Sometimes, like the 70s period, uh, Love Love Saves the Day. He did another really ex just incredible extensive history that I think it was the second time I read it. Uh, it was in 2021. I remember very very clearly regreeting this section, it kind of just stuck in the back of my head. And you kind of share this story about uh, maybe your theories about a vaccine and maybe that being the source of a lot of the sickness that took place in New York. Mm -hmm. um, I, it sounds like there was a pretty crazy story, in fact, that you were supposed to take this vaccine. Uh, but that's been kicking the back of my head. And, and then when I uh, kind of encountered Nick and he has a lot of research with a, a lot of other eyewitnesses who have expressed exactly the same thing that you were kind of describing there. And when I heard Nick kind of uh, his research, it just connected, right? I heard it was like a lightning bolt. And I was like, oh, this is exactly what Man Parish, 80s, 80s underground New York star was talking about in that book. And so uh, I was really delighted that we were able to like even just get a hold of you and talk to underground us. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> You're, yeah, um, yeah. So, so, what's, so what's, up, what's up with that? Okay. So like I had mentioned before, sex was a very big part of gay life. And people said, well, how can, you know, that's disgusting. I said, you got to realize in a room full of men, you know, who's guarding the hen house? You know, it's like, it's dark in a corner and there's a couple of hot men. No one's going to come by and say, you can't do that. You know what I mean? So there's groping sex, blowjobs, back rooms, sex clubs, cruising areas. They got, you know, because that, you know, guys are pigs, right? So because of that, um, things like gonorrhea and syphilis, back then syphilis you could have gonorrhea, but oh, syphilis, you know, you're a real dirty whore, you know what I mean? That's bad. So a lot of us, and I would get it, and every, not syphilis, gonorrhea, or NSU, non-specific urethritis, you were leaning on the wall of, a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of the piers, and you touch your dick, and, you know, you put bacteria, and your dick would get infected, and you'd wind up in the, uh, uh, we didn't have money, you'd wind up in the uh, New York City health system, you know, the, the, the public health places, and they started pushing a vaccine for hepatitis. Now, I just thought about this the other night because we were going to talk about this. I had hepatitis. I don't know if it was A or B. I remember when I was like 19 or 20 years old, my doctor said, you have a marker for hepatitis in your system. I said, I never jaundice. He goes, well, you probably had a mild case. All right. So out comes this hepatitis vaccine. And when I tell you they're pushing it, and I don't think that the people that were pushing it were some evil you know, Wiccan, you know, it's a, some, some underground devil movement. I think they would just truly believe that here's a group of men that were sexually connected, six degrees of separate, two degrees of separation, and 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 uh, uh, gonorrhea outbreaks and, and syphilis outbreaks would spread very quickly because of the, you know, the, the promiscuity, which was socially acceptable. So... I said, all right, well, you got to do it. Everybody's doing it. You know, don't risk it. And I said, well, I had hepatitis. Well, this will protect you again. And, you know, so and so and so. 
okay, 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 okay. So there was, there was, I think that they rolled it out in, 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 in like a couple of weeks, you know, they would do a couple of hundred and a couple of hundred and a couple of hundred or whatever. There was a, um, uh, in Chelsea on 29th street and ninth Avenue, there was a public health, you know, department of health. And they had a clinic there for people could pay. And it still may be there. I lived on 14th and 9th, right across from what is now the Apple store. And below me was uh, Lee's Montegard tranny shop, which I never knew. God, if I knew that it was there, I would have had so much fun. And I remember I had my scheduled date, like you're, you're at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock on a Tuesday. And I remember walking up from 14th Street, heading up to 29th Street. And I just kept saying to myself, something's not right. Something's weird. This feels weird. No, you got to do this. They brainwashed you. And other people will do it. Everybody, are you going for the vaccine? Yeah, I'm going for the vaccine. Are you go yeah, mm. you know, I'm out there fooling around. Let's, you know, we're doing it. So I passed. I came home and felt guilty and whatever. And then... Six months a year. I'm trying to. I'm trying to figure out the timeline. People started getting sick, mm. and the virus was stronger then than it is now, because any. I talked to this great physicist guy. If a virus is so strong that it kills everything and it's everything, it'll kill itself because it has no host, right? So if a virus is so strong, it kills, wipes out the planet, it doesn't survive. So it has to mutate to learn to coexist with the host. AIDS to reproduce, but not kill its, it could kill its host, but it can't kill the host of its children. Are you following what I'm saying? So back then the virus would kill you in six months. And I was going to say, um, what, what we can share with you today is going to illustrate how there was likely a whole host of additional contaminants in those shots that that do not you know are not part of the regular infectious burden now you know 45 years on if someone gets encounters hiv and becomes positive they just don't have that sort of sewer of the stuff that they put in the um the heptavax shot when, when they were able to uh, uh, um, identify HIV, my friend Steve, who's no longer with us and didn't die of AIDS, died of a heart attack uh, uh, for a totally different reason. He showed me a piece of paper and he had 12 different ver um, strains of HIV, mm -hmm. right? And some of them were outside the, uh, th there was a line in there. And I said, what, what, why are those above? He goes, we can't treat those, but the ones below we can. So I totally believe what's in there. And it was probably some sort of a, an infection bomb. <laughs> and hey, let's put it on the fags, right? I mean, they're fags. Uh, I remember when you would get beat up or Marsha Johnson, Pete Johnson, I remember very specifically, you know, say the cops, you know, somebody beat her up, a couple of guys, you know, put her in a car, beat her up and threw her in the river and the cops would go, well, she's a fag, she's a drag queen, who cares? You know, you're not going to get any sympathy, move on. So the attitude back then for gay people were like, well, you know, a bunch of faggots, who cares? So I wouldn't be surprised if it was a testing ground because, hey, best comes to best. It's a, we could figure out what this is. Worst comes to worst, you lose a couple of queers. Hey, a few less queers. You know, and that was the attitude back then.
So this is a, just like a catch-up slide that I've been including as I present to scientists, clinicians. So we're talking about people who take care of patients, people who live in the blurred space between patient practice and research, and people who just work in the lab. They just work under a microscope. Um, and I've talked with these folks for seven years now. And the behaviors and the responses that I got at the beginning were really, really yeah. Uh, yeah. consistently uh, skeptical yeah. and dis dismissive. And and uh, but the, the what I've done is go back to the core group of scientists in the 80s and 90s who published about this. There were a group of of uh, MDs. There was an MD that had specialties named Dr. Strecker. Um, there there was Dr. Alan Cantwell from New York who moved out to L.A. That was my colleague. He just passed in 2021. Uh, and then there's Dr. Len Horowitz, who really wrote the best single book about all of the evidence. And I think you and I, um, well, and Poole too, you know, we're, we're very much about, you know, yeah, life is short. Let's get to the actuals. Let's get to the receipts of things, uh, whether it's uh, practicing, um, you know, going through in our own lives, what we need to face and contend with, or if it's something that happened in history. So I went back to these guys and I took their bibliographies and I started by saying bullshit. I didn't want to believe it. There were too many parties that were going to be privy to the information, which would mean that there was this very large international coordination to make this disaster happen. And in my little naive uh, leave it to beaver upbringing, because I had kind of the antithesis of what you did. I was adopted, but I had what you'd hope to have in an, in a childhood. And, and, you know, there were little traumas, little skirmishes, little dramas for me, nothing like the scale of what I hear you confess in your video series, but coming back to this little wheel, I'm not going to walk you through all of these details. We can, um, have more conversations about the sort of the deep, deep background, but I think your uh, eyewitness, the potency and the authenticity of your eyewitness experience during the time in the city is more important than anything that I've already said in other sessions. So, you know, we can go into any questions you want to ask about it. I've got no, no, well, what, I, what I'd like, not about the slide, but I, I do think, I don't think we were targeted as gay people to get rid of gay people. I think whatever kind of experiment or whatever this was, whether it was a bio-warfare or just a curiosity, that the gay community was a perfect Petri dish because of the promiscuousness and the transmittability. So it was a perfect community to test this on. I don't think it was, let's get rid of fags and do AIDS. I think it was like, you know, these guys are a perfect way to, to, to spread transmission and we can hopefully follow this. That's why yep. I'm saying it's a perfect population that shares body fluid. And if this is shared through body fluids, it's a great way, a great community to test us on. You know, if it was attached to sickle cell anemia, then it would have been blacks. Or if it's some sort of Asian thing, it would have been Asians. But this, I, 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 I well, I mean, like I said, they were subnormal just like the uh, Tuskegee experiments and all that kind of shit, you know, it, they, they weren't considered, we weren't considered citizens and it was a perfect way to test this. It was, um, this but is how far. So, 
you're putting up the monkey thing, a viral agents recovered from tissue cultures of monkey kidneys, uh, kidney cells. Do you, um, just out of curiosity, do you believe there's a, a monkey-human connection? Or do you think it was monkey-to-lab modified and then let's go test it on humans? I can walk you through the play-by-play -play of the sloppy science of this era, which gave uh, you know uh, awareness. They they realized as people started presenting cancers and leukemias, oh, there's something wrong with these products that we're giving people, and then the bio warfare team kicked in. And they said, let's catalog all of these things. And there was years and years and years of what we now call gain of function at you the know, time. Yeah, yeah. yeah they called, called it, it re recombinant yeah, yeah. DNA technology. Yeah, they had different word. language. So. You no, know, I, I know that word very, very well. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And interferons. And then, you know, when, when, uh, uh, I'd love you to send this to me, you know, just in a, the, the, these screens in an email. I'd love to read some of them. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, the virus was very powerful, and you were given antibiotics because at that time, in the beginning, GRID, as we all know, gay-related immune deficiency is called, that's all they could do. Uh, my friend Klaus Nomi was an underground singer, sound, sang opera. Some people would know him, some people don't. Uh, well, this is I've always wondered about this uh, uh, monkey human connection or whether it was in monkeys and then they took it and bio warfared it and then tested that's, it. On that's what it looks like is that they they saw that through this experiment and other things. There's a whole lot of people that talk about this event. This is the oral polio campaign in the Congo. There was a documentary about it. Ed Hooper in the UK wrote his book, The River, uh, largely about this, this event. But the issue is, is that there are two major gaps in the theory that this is what introduced AIDS into people. It introduced SIV, Manny, and SIV to a to a lesser degree is a dangerous simian, and fatal simian immunodeficiency virus yeah yeah, yeah 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 right okay yeah it's the parent the parent from yeah, this yeah, no, animal. I got it. yeah unmodified yeah. so yeah, yeah. yeah so but it didn't it didn't give aids to africa in 1959 or 1960 everybody the world would have seen a completely different history if that had happened and it didn't but there Total were yeah, there were cancers there were a lot of cancers that occurred if you've heard of Burkitt's lymphoma. That's one of the investigators that went to Africa to look at all of the interesting exotic cancers that began to present in people who got this oral polio vaccine. So this was really a booster rocket in the whole biowarfare and the fascination with the monkey germs. So I'd like to explain something to people that are listening. To get vaccines, you usually take something and you modify it, and then you find a delivering agent, right? So uh, in researching these sort of things, and people are alarmed, this is not uncommon, right? So, uh, you know, a, a, a COVID is a, is, is a variant, m human or, I don't believe otherwise, uh, of, of, of flu virus, right? So if people are listening and wondering why were they slicing and dicing in a lab, this is the kind of thing you did. You needed a carrier and something to deliver. So this makes total sense, you know. 
if if SIV was 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 creating cancers but not deaths, how do we weaponize it, or how far can this mutate before before it becomes a worldwide scale? Okay, let's test it out. <laughs> you got a population of guys that are fucking each other and spreading it a lot easier than you don't want to put it out through the air because everybody is going to die, right? You don't want it to be like a common cold or flu because if this is that deadly, you're going to kill everybody. But let's find a way or there's a way of transmission through fluid either purposely or it just turned out that way. You could test it on a smaller, what'd you call it? A something or other uh, community, a non, non, uh, what'd you call it? Non-complete. Oh, sub, subnormal. A subnormal community. You call on a couple of fags. Who cares? Mm-hmm. Dr. Robert Gallo. You remember oh, yeah. in 1983 when Margaret Heckler stood up and said, this is our yeah. esteemed Dr. Gallo who has discovered the agent that causes AIDS. Well, this is going to sting a little bit, Manny. Um, This is the beginning of the process. They had already become aware that a number of primate pathogens could cause disease in people. This is his, uh, he's he's the junior scientist. uh, And the name of this project that went on for many years is called Investigations of Viral Carcinogenesis in Primates. To unpack the language, that means looking in primates for viruses related to cancers. He I, went, look, I, 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 I totally believe because COVID opened my eyes. That's how these things work in the background. So it, it to me, it's, it's logical. I mean, I, I understand a lot of this. So it's not only injected, but the, these things could be, yeah, easily. Uh, yeah. Wow. So this is about transfection. That's a newer word in the scientific lexicon, transfection. And it means uh, literally a direct and deliberate interspecies transmission of something. Um, So transfecting in this case meant a dog pathogen was found also in the hamster and the cat and the person. But how much of that do we have in us and our immune systems normally take care of it too? You know what I mean? So how much of this is normal or how much of it is spread through food, water, or or, or vaccinations, you know what I mean? So, uh, I mean, if we drill down, do we have a little TB or cancer in our background, but our immune system suppress it and keep it, you know, happening, and they're now trying to find out what that threshold is, and in doing so, like you called it sloppy science, sloppy genetics, they pushed it too far. So this is moving forward a little bit as they are telling the public we are fighting cancer we're in a war against cancer and leukemia and in in the background they're finding very very specific ways to induce and create cancer and i mean fatal cancer no 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 i did bio warfare i understand so this is this is to give uh folks an understanding of how broad primate cell cultures were infecting the population potentially, allegedly, we have to say, um, with uh, all this whole spectrum of endemic pathogens, microorganisms in the primates. Because they, how- they were assuming that primates were very close to humans and and, 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 and struck the closest thing that back then, primates were, you know, primary forms of research for human disease, right? So primates are one step below us in their mind. So primates would be a great source to research all this right 
Um, that's what's called part of what's called dual purpose, Manny. One, one side of that is absolutely true and legitimate. And then there's a whole nother side of it that they were farming these near oh, yeah. neighbors, these close cousins to the human being as potential, um, what they called candidate viruses. Now yeah, here's yeah. where we're, we're, we are not going to be able to hide. There's no shadow to hide in. We can't, we can't hide behind the tree. This is the stark reality as we get into understanding that they need knew the disease mechanism that they were heading towards and they were refining it. This, this is what for me spells out purpose, you know, intent to harm. So right. anti-lymphocyte serum studies is, this is just a cherry on the Sunday of an entire decade from, from Gallo's project that we looked at a few slides ago to this point at 1969, they have been observing and using repeatedly uh, a substance in a number of these experiments called anti lymphocyte serum. And what it is, is exactly what the name is. There's nothing ambiguous about it. It right, kills right. white cells. Your lymphocytes, right. And it's yeah. derived from the blood of uh, some species. You would generally, if you were doing a transplantation experiment, like a, like a skin graft, from a chimpanzee to a human, which is one of many very horrifying sort of island of Dr. Moreau um, experiments that they got up to in the special virus cancer program. You would start by making ALS, anti-lymphocyte serum, from the chimp and then giving that to the human subject in the experiment. Now, if that chimp was infected with SIV, not every chimp was. They've seen a high prevalence, though, in nature and certainly in the caged populations. You would immediately begin creating um, a candidate person, basically a patient that you were going to study and examine as they likely progressed into a disease state. Do some chimps have natural immunity? Uh, or were they looking for the, the disease and that the chimps, why aren't they all dead? Did they have a natural immunity they in a way? They, they, they didn't know yet. They didn't know. First of all, there were so many cross infections, that whole transfection topic. There were so many monkey pathogens, primate pathogens from one species that was endemic to them and harmless. It's why you didn't know they were infected with something. They didn't have yeah, a disease yeah, yeah, state, yeah, but they course, were yeah. shedding this stuff in their urine and their feces when they would bite, whatever, and they would transmit it. And then, for example, um, in your neck of the woods, up at LEMSIP, Laboratory for Experiment, Experimental Medicine and Science in Primates, LEMSIP, up in, in upstate New York. They had a, really a hub for a lot of the major uh, Ivy League schools. They were the monkey farm for right. people that were doing experiments at Columbia and New York University and right. all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But at LEMSIP, quite commonly, uh, one of these transfection events would break out and they'd have to kill that whole, whatever it was, right. the marmosets, the macaques right. that got infected right. yeah, by yeah, somebody yeah. else's germs. But this is specifically about them fine tuning and understanding. If you saw some of the tables of how they mapped human and chimpanzee blood and the effect on one another back and forth, you'd realize they were very, very aware and clear that something in chimp blood, in most chimp blood, would kill all of the white cells in human blood. They so knew Nick, it. Is, 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 is this nefarious or is this they're trying to find you know, cancer, but stumbled across. I mean, is this, I'm trying to figure out what you're saying. Is this 
overall is this a targeted thing that you're thinking or is this uh they they, they were trying to find cancer and ways but then realize this is a bioweapon let's go test it because those are two different things right you know this is the, the first way is the government's way to ri get rid of gay people right you know uh, so on and so on if it's targeted if this is a byproduct and a very big byproduct of research and then uh, 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 uh you know bio government stepping in and going well, hold on, you know, you've gone too far, you know, shut that down, we'll take it over from here. Oh, we've got something, let's go test it. Gay population is great. Those are two different things. So that's the question I'm sort of asking. What, what, what do you think is happening here? Uh, I'm I'm fully of the mind that there were a list of populations, including geographies like Central Africa, which we'll talk about in a minute here, uh, that were uh, prioritized and that that's part of a backbone for a much larger operation. It was not just we hate fags or let's get rid of the black people. We were both on the list. Uh, and that's a, it's a, you know, it's a, and was the common thing in black people because they had sickle cell and it made it easier to get them in gay people because they were easier transmitting social diseases that made made us and and Africa targets or is it just like you know blacks and fags let's get rid of them for let's test them on first because they're subhuman or subsocial. Okay. The, in March of this year, I this was one of the lightning bolt moments in my years and years of uh, really, I did actuarial accounting of this stuff. Um, I, I, I just checked everything, every claim, and, and all of the whistleblowers were substantive. Nobody made shit up. But you know, coming back to, uh, you know, what was it? Was it uh, accident or intent? Let's just keep going through this evidence because I don't want to give you my opinion. I want you to see the things that my opinion right. are based on. Here right. no, is no, what. Go ahead. So, so uh, this is Dr. MacArthur. He's in charge of the U.S. Army Research and Technology Group, and he's okay. describing something that they need ten million dollars for in '69. He's talking to a, a sub a, a subcommittee, and this is a funding committee, and and this was their charter that summer. Here's his quote: Within the next five to ten years, it would probably be possible to make a new infective microorganism, which could differ in several important aspects from any known disease-causing organisms. Most important of these is that it might be refractory to the immunological and therapeutic processes upon which we depend to maintain our relative freedom from infectious disease, end quote. They'd already observed it in certain patients that had gotten ALS and then had progressed into leukemias and cancers. Now they were going to tweak it. And coming back to your very strong and important insights about um, transmission fitness is what you're discussing, that it that it won't kill everybody. It's got to be weak enough to yeah. a certain <laughs> number, but not, not effective enough, efficacious enough, as they say, to wipe out the population or wipe itself oh, yeah, out. Yeah. Yep. I want to give you a quick little perspective. So I grew up in the nuclear age, right? So mm -hmm. in school, you've seen those things. The the alarm would go off, and we'd get under the under our our wooden desks and hold our heads to shield ourselves from the nuclear duck blast. and cover, duck and right. cover. Yeah. Right, right, right. So we grew up with nuclear war, right? And one of the things that happened after the Cold War and all that stuff is 
you're just not going to do nuclear war, right? So that was like 60s and 70s. Everybody had nukes, but nobody was going to push the button because it would end the world. That's when that kind of started. So government-wise, I believe you couldn't do nuclear war. What's the next thing you could do? Well, virus manipulation, chemical warfare, this sort of stuff becomes not in my mind, but in the government's mind, critical testing, critical export. I'm, I'm not giving the government a pass here. I'm just trying to show you my mentality. You present this, I totally believe it. I believe that they're trying to do research because they can't drop a nuke bomb, but you could drop a COVID bomb. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, and, and we have proof of that, you know what I mean? So uh, a lot of this, the government taking over this, I totally believe. And I and I and, and, and I've always believed, and the, the gay community being targeted, I believe uh, whether it was sub sub human subcultural or whatever, or the transmission rates are a lot quicker to study. You know, I, I I believe all this. So what you're showing me, I totally believe and absorb. And I think it's because the government had to shift away from dropping nukes to dropping. You know, uh, 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 what do you call it? Uh, um, you know, uh, 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 bio bombs. bombs. <laughs> bio bombs, because mm -hmm. I grew up in the nuclear age, and that you, everybody in the world agreed that's not going to happen. But what do you do? How do you fight Russia? How do you now it's China? How do you fight Russia? How do you fight China if you can't drop a nuke? You know, and they come at you. You have to be prepared. We have Henry not, Kissinger to thank for both eras. He exacerbated atomic proliferation around the world quietly he stoked campfire wars and he was there with this nixon administration behind oh, the yeah. scenes um, as the national security advisor and uh list you know literally there with uh sydney gottlieb dr sydney gottlieb from the cia the poisoner in chief he was he was thick as thieves with the, with all of this um and it doesn't it does not all ride on his coattails he didn't do this no, in his yeah, basement no, no, I didn't, no. No, no, nobody's innocent here. You know what I mean? Nobody's innocent. But but I have a. I'm not saying any of this is good either. I have a slightly. I I I saw years ago it shift from nuclear superiority to bio superiority when HIV happened, and I was after the shock, the denial, of the shock, and then years later processing it. And as drugs came out, you know, I sat and like, what the fuck was that? And it's like, wait a minute, of course, you know, you can't drop a nuke, but you can drop, drop a bio. And all these connections are I totally, I totally, I get it. You know, if I was a government, I'd probably have a bio lab, you know, as a backup to my nukes. I can't drop the nukes, but I could go throw a, <laughs> a bio bomb somewhere so my perspective living in the 60 group 58 i was born 60s and 70s that was nuclear you were afraid to go to sleep because the bomb would drop we don't have fear of that anymore now we're afraid of covid and and and, and viruses and this is such a logical progression it, it makes such sense to me what you're showing me it's i mean i'm glad you have this as as proof mm -hmm. well this is the basic in my opinion the real path of what happened with HIV, what we know as HIV, and that's HIV one from the chimp. HIV two, they did the same thing with out of the sooty mangabe. It's a, it's this beautiful black 
monkey. Uh, but they start with a whole farm of different potential agents from the yeah, animals, like we talked yeah, about. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, yeah. and then they they uh, damage or they say insult. Yeah, I know. Yeah, they modify the virus. Modulate, modulate the virus. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I then, that. and they the well, this is the important piece is that what's in HIV that isn't in SIV are twelve genes from a sheep virus called Visna. Yeah, yeah, let's see. Yeah, I, I got it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Here they're practicing again with immunosuppression and viral infection. And this is occurring in studies and experiments around the world. This is not, um, you know, people what, want to say, What a beautiful this- thing to drop on your enemy. You know, it's quiet and all of a sudden there's an outbreak and people become immunosuppressed and die of natural... Co- well, I didn't do it. You know, obviously there was a virus there or uh, infection of the nervous system. People are shaking and and, and cancers or, or, or ALS and those sorts perfect bioweapon. You know, I prove it. I didn't do it. Do it, you know, you something out broke in your country. Well, you know, we opened that little vial in the middle of the subway. You know, so I mean, I I, I I understand this. You know, yeah, it's 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 here, and I'm glad you have this link. This is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, sarcoma. God, so many of my friends had sarcoma. Oh, let's wow. let's talk about this. This is a red herring. Um, you remember in 1988 when that weird German doctor, Dr. Peter Duisberg, started getting airtime and saying, you know, HIV doesn't exist. And if it does, it's not causing AIDS. It's this toxic lifestyle of these homosexual men. Well, let's talk about what Peter Duisberg was doing in 1974 at Berkeley, taking money from the special cancer virus mm-hmm. program. Manny, he was making his own chimeras his own hybrids with bird sarcomas and leukemia viruses but yet 14 years later these viruses don't exist and they couldn't be causing this disease so you tell me is he this is this is at burger so is there a money trail I'm not, I'm not doubting this but can you find the money trail can you find the funding can you find a bill somewhere it's in the paper it's in the paper it's he, when they grade, say, grade. yeah, when they say acknowledgements, yeah, they generally grade, list grade, their grade. their NIH grants or the NAID grants. So it's, yeah, it's right there in the work. And this so, is a publication. So, so Nick, I, you're interviewing me, but I have a question. Uh, does this shock you? Because to me, as a government, it's not permissible. I'm not on their side, but... It doesn't seem normal, but it doesn't seem shocking to me. Like I said, if you can't drop a nuke, you drop a buyout. So is this, uh, I, I, are you putting together evidence, which I think is great, I mean, to expose the link, which most people don't know, but personally, do you find this shocking? I mean, I would think, I mean, fuck, God knows what the fuck we're doing. <laughs> well, what's in those labs, you know, level three, four labs or whatever they are called, you know, level yep. one. You know, the, all, all, all this stuff seems not abnormal. And I'm surprised that we haven't been hit with more shit. Not that it should exist, but I'm not shocked that it is. So um, I'm glad you're doing this and I want to be part in any way that I can to give you information and help. But I'm not shocked. This seems like, yeah. It seems like they've done it, and not in a passive way. Like, well, what can I do about it? No, I mean, it, 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 there's some sort of a logical sense here, on a government side. It's not logical that blacks or gays or any of that were targeted, but 
Jays were a great pool of transmission in a small community that we're not going to spread it outside. You know what I mean? And the side effect is they're subcultural, subhuman, and fags. You know what I mean? That's yeah, but boy, boy, speaking of male sexual behavior, what they didn't understand about the uh, gray and uh, blurry lines of heterosexual, homosexual domains. Right, right, they right, didn't right, get, right. They didn't really realize how many people were going to be, you know, sneaking out of the bathhouse. And, I, I've you know, had more sex with straight men than I've had with gay men. Okay, yeah, <laughs> you know, what yeah. I mean? so I can stand up and you know hold my hand to my heart with that. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, totally, t- totally understand. But I don't think a government would care. You know, when you know you crack some eggs, you know, I mean, I mean, you, you what do you call it? You make omelets. You're going to crack some eggs or whatever that mm-hmm. that word. I'm processing this in a different way because of what I've been through. Oh, and yeah. none of this is okay, and I'm glad you're exposing this. And hopefully, maybe another point of view can help you pull something together that you haven't thought of. Is why I'm saying all this. Well, there's there's whole PhDs. So to answer your your first question, am I shocked? Uh, yes, because I had a different value set before I encountered right. all of this. So it was it burned down my childhood, and your childhood burned down really early. So let me, I've only got a couple more of these slides and then we can go and pork pool yeah, is like yeah, waiting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so this is, straight. well, we said, we said there's something that SIV doesn't have. It doesn't have 12 genes from this sheep virus, from Visna virus. How did right. sheep virus genes get into a chimpanzee? It was physically pathogen? put in there through DNA. Like this. Through- CRISPR, which which wasn't around then, but CRISPR type of, you know, I got it. Yeah. Okay. Here's Dr. Prince's patent from 1975, which essentially was the same standard that they kept right up through the Heptavax trial. And I'll, I'll show that to you in a moment. He says in his, in his patent on how to make a hepatitis vaccine, to get your hepatitis particles, use a chronic human patient. You know, but if you don't have one of those, alternatively, get, get them from the chimpanzee. Because they believed we were so close together genetically back then. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but now try to square that with all of those years, like the U.S. Army catalog of all of those contaminants that they knew were in the animal. But yet they're saying it's okay to make a human biologic from animal blood. That's that's part of where, you know, you say, was this on purpose? Okay. So this is Gallo. This is Dr. Gallo. This is basically, this is the last little arc. This is him in the early 70s finding a human leukemia patient. They took her blood. Her, she was coded as HL23. That was her name that she was given. Right. And they found in her leukemic blood that she had a primate virus. She'd been exposed like millions and millions of people because they've been building human biologics on primate cell systems for years. And as you just saw in the patent, they said it was okay to just take fresh hepatitis right out of a chimpanzee to make a hepatitis. So uh, there's a, there's a lot of blurring of the lines yeah, in the biology. Yeah, 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 so yeah, he yeah. takes he takes this virus and he fiddles with it. And he crosses it. And here's an example of how insane they were getting. These are different types of cell culture, four different basic lines. Think of horse races. And then these are individual viruses that he wanted to see if it would interact with, if it would fuse with. 
So and, and, this is, and this is normal lab stuff where they're going to have you know a uh, uh, you know uh, sample A, sample B, sample C, sample D. Mm -hmm. I got it, and then they're going to go down that list and see what grows and what dies, and you know, yeah, yeah. This is this is this is this is the last scientific slide. This is Dr. Prince pr publishing about the heterogeneity, meaning the, the consistency of the hepatitis particles that he got out of eight liters of chimpanzee blood. And this was the batch for the New York Blood Center, your neighborhood, the Lindsay F. Kimball Research Institute at the NY Blood Center that managed the New York cohort starting in November of 1978. Now we've talked to an eyewitness from Long Island named Tony, um, and we Long love Island. him. Long Island. Well, did I did I just put a G hard G in the Long Island? Yes. Okay, man. I do it. There, Long Island. I'm from Brooklyn. Yes, well, it's it's got to be Long Island. So, uh, but Island. he he was there, and he he told you know just he discussed being a young kid in the city like yourself. Um, he's right around you know he you guys you guys could go bowling together, um, but he he discusses uh, seeing friends change. And he discusses people dropping out, just disappearing because, you know, they would find out later it was the sudden onset of the KS. And it was so disfiguring. People are like, fuck this. I'm not going out to the bar with concealer I had, a friend on. Who had, had had makeup stick and go to the bars and put stuff on his KS and, you know, uh, what, you know what, what concealer on his yeah. KS at the bars. I mean, that's how bad it was. He survived. <laughs> that's yeah. brilliant. Well, this is this is the last this is the last slide, and then I'll stop sharing this stuff. Um, this is looking back, and I think that Dr. Smunis, Dr. Wolf Smunis, who ran the New York cohort, I think he was one of the good guys. He's he's reflecting here on a short-term study they did in the mid-70s in Manhattan. And there were 1,500 gay volunteers that were hepatitis right. B negative. And he says at the end of the it's a 24 month window. So at the end of two years, half the cohort couldn't be located. Now you tell me, well, Manny, did they all and, move and, to Paul? And, and herein is probably that shot. That that mm -hmm. study, that baseline study is probably you weren't told you were part of a study. You were just told that it was to protect you. So you weren't told that you're a part. And, and here, here this is. You know, where this is from? From from where this is? Uh, this is just a paper. Biology. It's a paper. Yeah, journal in, medical, yeah, biology. Journal medical right. biology. Yeah, right. And, and therein could be the. You know, I wasn't told I was part of a study. I was told, oh, you got to do this because this is going to help you. Uh, yeah, yeah. Experimental vaccine administered to gay volunteers. Yeah, I mean, there it is. Central Wacky Regional Measles Control. Now, this this is the very very end this is his this is this is wolf's cohort because this is a very unfortunately for me i think wolf was one of the good guys and i think he got whacked with the same little toolkit of weaponized cancers that they had all been working on developing for 17 years well of course um, you're going to get whacked because if this stuff goes out to the public you're going to you know there's going to be riots and you can't have that but yet the government has the responsibility to protect people, you know what I mean, and build bombs and bio-warfare. So, of course, you're going to shut it down. You know what I mean? So anybody who exposes this is going to get whacked. 
This is what Clad said about Wolf's behavior. He was crying unto heaven, Manny. Throughout the entire two years of the trial and homosexual men, he told us over and over again at monthly meetings that the study was a disaster and demanded an accounting of each of the more than it was 1,083, exactly, men in the study. Um, And Clad went on to join the global fight against hepatitis B with the PATH organization out of Seattle, Washington, along with Dr. Prince, the chimpanzee, get your get your hep from a chimpanzee guy. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Prince and Dr. Stevens and several others went around the world. And then as we all were already dealing with AIDS in our community in the U.S., it started just mysteriously flaring up in Rio de Janeiro and in Thailand and in Sydney. Now there were sexual in what, clusters. In what, in what populations? In what po- junkie populations? You, t- you populations? tell you tell me, Manny. It was gays. Okay, but the heterosexual communities weren't getting HIV. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. no, no. Okay. So, so. So. At a certain point, it turned from a maybe a lab test to a nefarious. Let's you know, let's let, let, let's get rid of facts. I got it. I have a question for you. You've got this incredible amount of stuff what's what are you what are you doing with it i mean i know you're doing this but is there a documentary is there a senator is there something and what do you want as an outcome exposure you know uh, uh you know retribution uh, uh, or just public knowledge uh what what what, what do you why are you doing this? Different people need different things. People that okay. are still today living with HIV, first and foremost, um, I'm hoping that it will provide some kind of a moral balm. If any of them are still dealing or suffering from, you know, being excised from their family or <laughs> religious stuff or any morally, of that crap, you know, morally, this is this morally. is God. You know, His God will punish you. You know, remember you remember Billy Billy Graham. Um, but that's that's what I care about for those that are that are uh, HIV positive long haul survivors. For those that like uh, you and I that made it through the experience and. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I was, I was, like I said, I'm a little brother. I was, I was a young teenager. What, what do you when think it was, of prep? What do you think of prep that's out now? I, I think that it's a, a really disgusting, uh, monstrous See, outgrowth. I do too. I do too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, I do too. and it, it, it scared, it, it scared our community into becoming, uh, customers customers for life. That's what they got out of us. They're like, oh, you didn't get infected. You're at least going to be our customer for life because yeah. Merck was a partner in all of this, Manny. He, they were oh, right. I'm they, sure. Listen, all- I'm, I, yeah, I, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, so let me, I, let me bring it in for like, a landing. I, I, I hear an anger side and I'm glad that it's there. And I'm curious with that pushed aside, you've got a great bit of wealth here. What are you doing? You know, now you've got this beautiful package. So you, you're going to expose it to, you know, this and stuff. But how do you, how, how do you it's answer two, yourself? It's a twofold path. Um, there's a scientific path. There's a group that you know, right. have been uh, really meeting with scientists who can tear it apart and or say, yeah, I did that kind of work in the 70s and 80s. I know exactly what you're talking about here. Um, and that's important from an academic uh, and we'll say legal. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In yeah, case yeah, there's yeah. any ever any kind of, of action like a citizen's right. tribunal or right. something like right. that. The other path 
is the social side that we just talked Good. about a couple of communities, but most people in the world are not long haul HIV positive survivors or gay men of a certain age. Most people in the world are focused on their own belly buttons right now. And that's the COVID. So anything that from a systems perspective, because we they weren't say, around through yep. HIV. Yeah. So well, yeah, that's yeah, they're not that to blame in the past. Like when I grew up, polio was something that happened 10 years yep. before me. So I'm not polio focused when I grew up, but my parents would tell me horrible stories. Oh, that's aunt so-and-so. And the reason she doesn't walk because of polio, just like HIV is to COVID, you know, polio was to me growing up, you know? So it's hard to get an audience in there of now 30, 40, 50 something that weren't around interested in this because, oh yeah, you know, well, we've got preps, you know, so move on. And that's why I'm curious where, you know, what, what, I mean, this needs a documentary. I mean, the, it, you're right. It needs yeah. two sides. I'm, you you have the, the, a lot of this evidence and you need more of the clinical, you know, medical side, but this needs exposure through a documentary asking a question, you know, not an act up, you know, radical fairy kind yes. of thing. It just needs a, a thing that people could listen to and tolerate anger-free so they can make decisions or ask further questions, right? Oh, yeah. It can't, it can't be my voice because I will not be able to keep... Um, no, I hear it. Up. No, I, I, listen, I have what you have, right? I'm just as angry, but I kind of learned that, you know, I could sit here and scream and Honey, I could scream. <laughs> I'm a screaming queen when I want to be with a big fucking mouth. But also the other side of it is get a little a little prodding, put my legal mind on, and I could rip you a new asshole. <laughs> and that's what needs to be done. Hijack your 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 podcast? Not at, not at all. Not not at all. Uh, first of all, I want to add on to what Nick just said. I think because uh, I I think I'm the next piece of that because I am younger, right? So I'm from from the early '80s. I'm born, right? So I uh, grew up in the shadow of a lot of this stuff. And you're right. There is how do I say this? I want to change the conversation because I think a people think of AIDS as this isolated thing that happened to gay men, which it, it's true. It is a historical thing, right? But right. it's not, it's very much and very much in intertwined with what we're going through right now. And there's an opportunity because I think people are starting to see that, that this is not just, I think COVID woke this up. See, COVID woke this up. A hundred percent. I want to be able to change the conversation. Cause I, I get tired of, I get, I'm angry because I get told I'm crazy and I'm an AIDS denier, et cetera, et cetera, whatever. I want to make it more palatable to talk about these things. Uh, we mentioned Peter Duesberg earlier, this uh, scientist who like is famous because he said there's no AIDS virus. I talk to a lot of conspiracy people. Well, I mean, the well, only I person that know. They only know Duesberg. They don't know any of the stuff that Nick just shared with us. It's so like so. I mean, Putin says you know? there's no such thing as homosexuals. You know, exactly. I mean, like, exactly. Opinions and it's, are like assholes. Thank you for showing us yours. You know, hundred percent. 
And you don't give them power either. You know what I mean? Those are the people that should fall into the smoke of the past. You know what I mean? Those are voices that, okay, you said it, and that's the way it should be taken, not that they're a, a major, you know, uh, a contributor to, to, to the conversation. Anyway, I'm sorry. hundred percent. No, uh, I think I think it's curious that his voice is so amplified in the like uh, alternative spaces, right? That's the only voice you hear that's suspicious. You gotta realize this is very painful for a lot of people this of my is generation true. This is true. because I've lost 30, 40 friends. I held people as they died. I, I carried, took people in my car to doctors. I, I went to visit people in the hospital and we had to put on uh, gowns and masks and gloves and don't touch them. The cloths know me. I hugged them and kissed them and, you know, spray me with, you know, uh, peroxide practically, you know, go into the, into the clean room and get disinfected. You know, no, these are human beings. And then, mm -hmm. you know, it, 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 it's, it's hard for a lot of people to relive that. And when COVID came around, it's like, Oh my God. The COVID thing for me was not the virus because I knew how to manage it because I did it once before. It was the psychological effect. It was the losing people. Uh, it wasn't even the masks. It was like, oh my God, there's going to be people and I'm going to have to help them. And it's going to remind me of all my dear friends that I lost and all that. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's mm -hmm. why it's a hard for a lot of people to mm -hmm. talk about this because. Uh, I'm diabetic, and there's uh, what's his name from uh, uh, on TV, and he talks about diabetes. Do this uh, too much? Well, you know, we got to talk about this because there is a population. This is too much, and they're having a hard time paying their bills and just getting over COVID. And they don't want to know about this because I can't take it anymore. I got it. So you're going to get that kind of pushback. Oh, yes, but there's people who didn't. There's people my age or people younger who uh, are are open to exploring these types of topics, but I feel like are being misdirected, taking down the wrong path. And that's a slap in the face to me, to the people who did die, to the to your memories, because there's a truth. There's like a truth that's not being... Yeah, yeah, no, I got you. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. does this all end in tribunals for Robert Gallo? I, I don't know. I would love to see that. I would love to see if, like Nick and I just kicking something that leads to this chain reaction, right, that we all... I think you have a better behaving. situation now because back then there was no internet, there were no chats, there was no mm -hmm. things where you could spread stuff, you know what I mean? You'd have to go to a physical meeting to talk about this, you know, and, and, and huh? now you can post stuff and it can go viral around the world instantly or not even viral. It can be a seed that's planted that five years from now, somebody takes and spreads. So the opportunity of, of, of talking about this is much easier now. You have a podcast. You know, before, if you weren't Barbara Walters or Walter Cronkite, you know, in the good old days, you couldn't get any news out. You're that crazy person screaming from your roof. Oh, radical fairy, <laughs> shut up. You know, and now it's different. I'm maybe a little bit of both. I'm, I'm in the Barbara Walters uh, crazy right, okay. camp as well as the uh, the podcaster. No, but I think I'm not. I don't feel I don't feel derailed in any way here because I I can tell. First of all, Manny, I'm really impressed by your uh, fluency in this topic. Like you you know about these things. I think that's really impressive. Just to begin with, I wasn't. I've only sure had two months of high school, but I had to learn through the street. Right, so street became survival. You know, I I can't do you know logarithmic uh, you know math or anything like that, but I could sure tell you that shit don't look good. And you know, you I'll get black <laughs> on you real fast, and that shit ain't working, honey. Because and my experience is telling me, mm -mm, you know, so I follow my instincts. You know, my sister uh, uh, kept vaccinating, not COVID, but before that, giving them a uh, child's Tylenol and child's Afrin. And my nephew grew up with MS. 
because his immune system was destroyed from all this fucking shit. Mm -hmm. I grew up, my, my mother was crazy, but we had an organic backyard in Brooklyn. We had dirt instead of cement and grew organic tomatoes. And I'm not some tree hugging, you know, give me spray cheese in a can any day. You know what I mean? But I, uh, I grew up with a little bit of Buddhism and it sounds weird, but it told me to respect my body and listen to my brain. If I got pneumonia, I'm going to the hospital because I don't want to die. But if there's a virus going around or, 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 or if something's happening, I think about it for a moment before I listen to what's being put on the newsfeed. Oh, like now there's a whole new thing of, what was it, triple virus they talked about. Now, yeah, this yeah. respiratory COVID and flu, you better get your shots. And I'm like, no, I have friends that got COVID shots that had brain hemorrhages and all this other kind of shit. And that's a whole other discussion, mm -hmm. but I'm not into, I know when I'm in trouble and I know when I need help and I know when I don't, and I'm not into prophylactics. You know, not even rubbers, <laughs> but I, I'd rather jerk off. <laughs> Put it into perspective, right? Yeah. right? Yeah, you yeah. know, uh, after you use a rubber, I'll jerk off and be just as happy. So I do, I do the same thing with, with, with medical stuff. Doctor just gave me an alpha blocker. I was on a beta blocker for 15 years because I had white coat syndrome. I was abused by a doctor. I go in the doctor's office. My, my, my blood pressure was sky high. I just had a knee-jerk reaction. He gave me a pill for 15 years that destroyed my metabolism. So... You know, I'm very, very careful of that stuff. Uh, people are sheep sometimes, and you got to get your virus, you know, show your card, you know, or you can't come mm -hmm. into this restaurant and all that. But mm -hmm. you have a great situation because you have a platform. It may not be a, a 20 million per people platform, but it's a platform nevertheless. And truth does, shit, you know, shit, say, you know, the truth always comes out, you know, like those stupid movies, you know, in the very, very end, you know, the heavens part and, you know, and and, and, and Madonna comes down and saves the day. You know what I mean? It, it, if, if this is truth, it will come out. And very well said. And, that's, and I'm glad that you're doing it. And I'm glad that we brought this to you because I could see... I, Maybe one thing I'm good at is facilitating connections, I guess, is just uh, the way that you kind of reacted to Nick's content here today makes me very excited. I'm glad we were able to bring that to you. I, I, don't, I don't know if you'd be willing to talk to us again in, in the future, possibly, because I think... Yeah, I, I mean, if there's questions you have, I've got nothing to do but, you know, um, a little bit of music and then go online and look at porn later. So if I you want to talk... Look at the sad queens in my neighborhood on Grindr, forget it. But if you <laughs> if there's questions that you haven't done, I can sure. go through them. Well, let's, I, you got my time. Sure. Why don't you just tell us a little bit, I guess, about the story? Because it seems like there's a story there. I feel like you were going to take this uh, experimental vaccine, it sounds like. Uh, it sounds like you escaped. I, mean, I think you said that in the book, uh, Tim Lawrence's book, that you kind of like escaped out a window. Can you tell us just a little bit about like that moment, like when you were confronted with this this trial? Yeah, I, I was walking up to take the vaccine from 14th to 29th Street to the public health thing, and they were pushing this um, uh, uh, hepatitis vaccine. And I remember just feeling... I felt uncomfortable. I debated whether I wanted to go at all over a few days. And I talked to some friends and they're like, come on, you know, you, we don't want to know the syphilis outbreak or gonorrhea outbreak. I mean, that you had syphilis, gonorrhea, NSU, which is nonspecific urethritis, which means you just have an infection from dirt in your, in, in your dick. And I think there was maybe just general pneumonia. You know, not, not not a COVID pneumonia or, you know, anything. it was like a general pneumonia going around. Wait, there was one, there was, there was, um, there was also an outbreak of, um, oh man, uh, uh, not, not, uh, not rubella, uh, 
Typh not typhoid, one of those type of things that was a small breakout, but it wasn't only in the gay community. So it was like, you, you really should do this. You really should do this. Come on, you know, they're only trying to help us. And when I walked up there, I just, I, I remember it as clear as day. I'm like looking down at the sidewalk and I'm walking, this, this just doesn't feel right. This just doesn't feel right. And I turned around and I went home and I felt guilty for not doing it. Hmm. And then people said, Oh, you got your vaccine like today with COVID. And I went, uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, me too. You can lick my ass. I'm clean. You know what I mean? I mean, <laughs> hepatitis, right? Hello. You know, so uh, 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 I, I was like people were today with COVID. I was vac in the vaccine closet. Mm -hmm. Right. And you socially, you didn't want to say that you didn't get your vaccine mm -hmm. because you you were dirty, you were undesirable, and any gay life back then you had to be hot and beautiful and have a big dick and you know an eight pack and be you know the alpha you know in the bar that everybody wanted. So you didn't want to be that dirty whore alpha that didn't take the you know didn't didn't take your vaccine. So you, you lied your way through it, and then of course AIDS grid AIDS broke out. And that was a whole other mental trip like COVID was. People stopped going to, well, the back rooms closed because the Department of Health closed a lot of the back rooms and other bars voluntarily did that. Then the bars were empty for months and a lot of them closed. And then when you went to the bar, it was um, uh, uh, paper cups or plastic cups and they wouldn't let fooling around in the bathroom. You know, when they closed the back rooms, every, there was a line for 45 minutes in the bathroom because two queens were getting it on the stall, but that stopped. And then I remember very clearly opening door hands and taking my shirt and opening the door handle. And did you get it from a glass? Did you get it from a doorknob? Is it okay to sit on the toilet seat? Because none of this was, you know, discovered yet. And my friend called me and said, Klaus, no, he's in the hospital, Roosevelt Hospital before he went to Sloan Kettering, we got to go up and visit him. And that was a real eye opener because they had an isolation AIDS floor, an infectious disease floor away from the other infectious diseases. So this was, you know, it, it, I, if I remember there were two, it was a center and then two wings. One side was infectious and the other side was strictly AIDS. And there were 15 or 16 or 18 rooms there. And we went to Klaus's room and there was a little cart outside and there were, paper gowns, gloves, masks, hair, and foot things because they didn't want you taking whatever virus could have been on the floor out back because they didn't know how to transmission. And on the doorway, it was only open a tiny bit if, if, if you needed help, uh, was a biohazard sign and these big, you know, do not touch, do not, you know, uh, uh, stand, you know, six feet away, basically, in other words, you know, same thing, you know, and I went over and I went to hug him and the three other people, oh, what are you doing, what are you doing? And I said, Klaus, you know, and he started crying because he sat there up in his bed, covered with chaos, started watching TV and looked at us coming in in shock. And it had been weeks from nothing to this, to, to, to this, you know, maybe a month, maybe six weeks. That virus was so fucking powerful back then. Then they moved him to Sloan Kettering and then he was unable to walk and obviously died. Other friends of mine, uh, 
same thing it turned into night they look like auschwitz patients they did uh, aids wasting syndrome which we don't have now because of diseases you, you, you'd see you go christopher street or or, or you'd go to someplace and you know uh, uh, they'd be pushing some guy in a wheelchair and all of a sudden i'm happy i'm gay oh my god that's right don't touch anything that could be you this poor guy there's nobody helping you know, you had Elizabeth Taylor, and you had Act Up, and you had uh, 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 um, uh, Silence Equal Death, and, uh, and all this stuff trying to get funding, and Nancy Reagan going, you know, no, <laughs> you know, because they're fags. <laughs> it, was, it, it was heavy and deep and intense. So a lot of people now have not experienced that, and I think that needs to be told so people can understand the depth of this. Not that I felt triggered or bad, but it was, oh, yeah, there was AIDS, and, you know, you kind of get over it. Well, people got cancer, people got hepatitis, people got, you went to a hospital, there was care. We were shunned. There was no care. There was no, well, Roosevelt Hospital did, and one of the other hospitals in New York I did, but it was 16 or 12 or 10, you know, uh, hospital rooms mm -hmm. on a floor, and that was it, like, what are you talking about? We have a half of a wing of eight rooms over here where the nurses will fluff the pillow up behind you because we don't know what to do. That's a lot different than COVID, right? <laughs> well, we didn't have the technology. We didn't have the, you, you couldn't gene sequence. You couldn't, you know, put it in a machine and it would come back with 12 different possibilities or ask AI, you know, based on this algorithm or, 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 or this genetic sequence, what can we do? There was none of that back there. And we watched a huge part of, the gay population die. And the sad part is, you know, like everybody else dies, a lot of these guys were creative. You know, they were they were musicians, they were they, they, they were poets, they were actors, they were playwrights, they were, you know, writers, or so on and so on. So it, it wasn't only a population loss, but it was a creativity loss, you know, in the arts, in business, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, people die, populations die. You know, you have, you know, uh, the Israel and Gaza thing, you, you, massive people die. I'm not saying this is more important or less important, but if you're gay, I tell this about the music business. If you're into music, you got to know your history to be somebody. If you're gay, there isn't a cutoff back there. There isn't a wall that you go from here forward. You kind of got to go back to, Germany and and yeah, unspoken thing the Nazis would put Jews in I mean uh, gays in ovens you know what I mean you got to know gay history if you're that interested in it and maybe not you know I mean I could be a bimbo and just ignore it and just you know I got big tits and you know I'm gonna <laughs> blah, 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 put up a, a, a TikTok video but if you have a brain you probably want to know mm -hmm. and there's no wall there before AIDS and after AIDS I remember marching in the first, I remember Stonewall, you know, people don't even know the story of Stonewall, you know, that like, I remember going to bars, I went to a bar called the Round Table on 52nd Street, and I was 14, 15, they didn't ID you, but if you looked old enough, you could probably get in. And I would drink black Russians and uh, white Russians and uh, take my clothes off and be in my underwear and they'd throw me out. And it was like out of a movie, you'd see me get out and then the clothes would come out and I'd be Argh. And I remember cops, I, I was I was sober, I came out and some cop two doors down pushes me against the wall and takes the nightstick and goes right up into my balls and hurts me pretty badly. Fucking faggot, you came from the gay bar, that fag bar. 
and I'm like, what are you talking about? If I see you in this neighborhood, I'm going to put you, I'm going to shoot you in the head, put you in the back of the car, dump you in the river, and no one will ever know. Don't you ever come here again. That was not uncommon. And in Stonewall, they used to come into Stonewall and beat people up because boys were dancing with boys and girls were dancing with girls. And the boys that were dancing with girls, the girls were probably trannies or drag queens. Well, we didn't have trannies back then. They were drag queens, right? Uh, uh, back then, you were a sex change. <laughs> and even that was very rare. And the queens just got fed up one day and lit the place on fire and rioted up and down the streets. I mean, I remember that. And then I started marching in gay parades. And you'd march down Fifth Avenue and Fifth Avenue. Faggots, fuck you! You know what I mean. And you, people, kids, generation does not know what we went through to give you the right to hold hands or stand on TV and say, "I'm triggered because I can't be in sports." It drives me fucking crazy. We gave you these rights, you mug, you fucking idiot. You're you're begging for rights that we gave you. Stop. I'm going to trigger somebody, and I don't. I hate that word trigger, but. It, we were doing good, really, really good. There's a generation that doesn't understand what we did for them. Mm. And it's like, this is all new and different. And just learn your history a little bit and then, then take that and, 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 and protest and take that and, and, and use the intelligence behind that to talk to that school, that committee, that, that neighborhood, instead of just like, you know, I'm triggered because I can't, wanna, you know, it's like, wear a fucking helmet, bunk up. You know what I mean? Life is hard. You're going to need a helmet. You know what I mean? It's What we went through was terrible with nobody. But we were a community. That's the other thing. Gay now is not really a community. If today gay people can go to straight bars with their friends, right? And when I grew up, you had a black friend. Now you have a gay friend and you're cool. Right? So you go to your, you go to a straight bar. There's no, no problems. Back then, it was a very, very big deal. So there was a big sense of community and a big sense of something flared up. People would help people, whether it was medical, social, political. You know, you want to go to a march? What's it about? Well, you know, Nancy Reagan is not giving us help. And we just got to show that there's people out here. So there was a sense of community, and we did that. You know, uh, I knew radical fairies and sisters of the uh, perpetual, you know, uh, uh, the ones in San Francisco that put glitter on them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were fabulous because, you know, they were radical, but they weren't, you know, uh, 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 I'm coming to your house in your neighborhood and I'm going to redecorate your living room. <laughs> you know what I mean? It wasn't about that. It was like, we're here. We're Well, we're here. We're queer. Get over it. That's that's one thing we used to chat. Walking down. We're here. We're queer. Get over it. It's silly now, but we broke through so many barricades. It's your father. It's your sister. It's your uncle gay, you know, Tony and all that kind of stuff. Now the sense of community is not needed because it's okay to be gay. So the politics and all this stuff have greatly changed. And if there's a way to get through that and, you know, hey, hey, fags, you need a history lesson. You know what I mean? Get back in there and just, 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 just spend a couple of days on YouTube and you're going to get bullshit stories and you're going to get real stories, but you'll put something together. If you don't want to read, you don't have to read. You can watch five minute videos on YouTube with no attention span, but there's some history back there. That's really cool. Quentin Press. Amazing. You know, Sam has some, uh, some little wispy thing, but the things that he did walked around with makeup on and, and, and women's clothing and, uh, you know, uh, uh, people like Paul Lynn, Charles Nelson Riley that were just flamboyant all over TV and everybody knew they were, they were gay and didn't care. Now it's such a big deal. So, you know, his, 
history is really if you move forward you have to know your past right so you 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 have a good thing where you should you have a platform and you should maybe talk about some of the gay history my friend does the lgbt the lgbtq plus a history project and i said oh i'd love to talk he says you're not old enough i said i'm 65 he says you're not old enough so he's focusing in on a lot of the older gay community to tell their stories before they die I was a pig in New York City, and I want to talk about the underground, the mine shaft, the glory holes, the sex clubs, because nobody's documenting that because everybody that's there was probably dead. And it has to be documented. And it's something that I near and dear to my heart. A glory hole is near and dear to my heart. So, you know, I think it should be documented. You're in a great position because you've got this going on. You should definitely talk about this and you should document it and get old, tired queens like me to talk to you. It would be great. Manny, I got to jump in with a quick little trip over to Fire Island again. Yeah, <laughs> I had a it I had a fabulous friend. back then. By the way, just quickly, it was fa- you got it was when Dorothy opens up the door and everything turns black and white to color. You were in Fire Island. It was nobody's going to bother you. You could walk around in the tiniest skimpy bikini and put on a tiara, and nobody would even look at you. And it was this relief from the straight world. You got on that boat, and you crossed over, and you're on Fire Island, and you could just be whoever the fuck you are from Friday to Sunday, and then you went back to the closet. It was incredible. I'm sorry. No, don't that. don't apologize. Uh, you 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 really enjoyed it. You're a local. I went there once, but my story is about my my dear friend who succumbed uh, to liver cancer in 2017, and he was a longtime New Yorker. And I'm not going to name him, except was he positive? Yes, he 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 thinks he got infected in 80 or 81. Um, And and uh, he he uh, he had a nickname, the Polish Princess. And um, and when he when he came out to the West Coast is where I met him and knew him. Um, I was I was a young, you know, a young uh, queer. And he was this uh, very interesting, unbelievable character that I had never seen encountered before. A native New Yorker, HIV positive. Were, yeah, East Coast Queens were a breed of their own. They were they were loud and bold and in your face or crazy as fucking hell. You know what I mean? And that's what made life then beautiful because everybody is a snowflake. You know what I mean? But we had all these snowflakes that were amazing, crazy, but amazing. You know, they made life richer. Anyway, sorry. So he he tells me this story, and I know that he was telling me so that I could share it with you, and we could have a laugh about it right now. He he was out on the island for a big I don't know white party weekend. I don't know all of the seasons on on Fire Island, um, but he was there, and I think it was the Ice Palace. And he said that he took a whole lot. Uh, we'll say an effective dose of whatever the narcotic was, you know, some something heavy. Well, and Matthew trippy. Perry just tried a special K, you know what I mean? As a yeah. girl, you know, really. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway. he, he 
he's there at the ice palace and I think it was the ice palace. And he said that it was a huge dance floor that had basically like a big tent. It had a big, uh, like uh, central. It was a, it, um, it, it would have been a banquet hall for a motel. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it was very long and very narrow and it had a peak roof and sometimes they would decorate up in there. So, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he's really starting to come on. The drugs are kicking in and he's starting to trip balls in a very effective way. And Work. literally, yeah, and it's full and the place is full. It's packed to the gills. Yeah, no, it, was so, you know, it was always packed. His, yeah, yeah. his timing and the influx of people coalesced and he started hallucinating, so he thought that the place was sinking into the sand and he starts having a panic attack and he has to get out from underneath there. But it literally was, do you, did you remember that? Did you hear about that? They had to read, they had to redo it because it wasn't built for, you know, uh, you know, uh, 350 tripping faggots bouncing up and down, like, 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 like a pile driver on, on the mm -hmm. thing there. So they, they knocked it down. I don't think knocked it down, but they re, re, re rebuilt it, rebuilt it. They, they re-anchored it. Yeah. He was there the night that it's literally I, sank I, up, I, uh, I have into a the funny sand. acid story that involves the Metropolitan Opera House. If you've got a five minute side For trip. Sure. Oh, come on. Yeah. So I used to, when I went to high school performing arts, that's where they did the movie Fame, and it was much like the movie. I got thrown out with somebody named Freddie Prince, and he had, uh, I can't remember the TV show. Anyway, mm -hmm. uh, one of the kids was in the Metropolitan Children's Opera and said, I can get you a job at the opera, and then anything to stay away from home. Pays $10, $15 to sing. You put on, it's a non-singing part. You put on a, a gladiator outfit, and you stand there, or you march in the procession. Non-singing part. So... I was there for two seasons until my mother found out there were notorious homosexuals there and wrote a letter. If my son's around these homosexuals, you know what I mean? Uh, 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 I'll sue you or whatever, you, you know, whatever parents do when they they don't want their children to be gay. In the meantime, I used to find porn and cut the girls out, and I had all the men in that little manila envelope my mother found. I I'm remember. so proud of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. She said, I mean, I was hardcore fag, right? She, uh, my, uh, can you come in here a minute, man? Yeah. My father, uh, your father and I found this uh, Manila envelope oh, in the basement. No. The, yeah, oh. it was, oh no, uh, you know, stuffed in the roof. And there's all kinds of naked men in different poses in there. I mean, I was crafty little bitch with sisters, you know, <laughs> put out the pussy and just take the guys, you know. So anyway, she had this, you know, she wanted grandchildren. That's all that she worried about, you know. Oh my God, I'm not going to have grandchildren. I'm like, what about me? Anyway, so at the Met, we were there one day. And I lied, I was 18, 19. There were two or three people my age, and most of them were old opera queens that couldn't afford to pay for the opera, but they would be extras and they were on stage with Maria Callas and Plaza del Domingo and all this, this kind of stuff. A guy comes in and goes, ooh, I just got some organic masculine. Why don't we all drop acid? Organic, like, it's organic, okay. Yeah, organic <laughs> mess. Well, there was back in those days, you know, I mean, I don't take a lot of drugs, but, uh, uh, or did, you know, if I did coke, I, uh, I got paranoid. If I smoked weed, I got paranoid. If I drank, I fell asleep. So I remember remember all this shit because I knew who you blew in the bathroom for free coke. I remember. Right? <laughs> so, uh, um, uh, 
He's, I got some organic masculine. Why don't we all drop acid? And everybody except for a couple of the old 60-year-old queens, we all drop acid. We go backstage and we're lining up. There's horses and chariots in front of us. And we all three or four across holding our spears, so, you know, in our little loincloths and all that. And everybody's acid kicks in at the same time. And the music starts up. Da, 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 da. And we start to walk out on the stage. Did you start laughing? No, no. In those days, there was incandescent lights. So those stages were 110 degrees. I mean, they were hot. These were giant tiles on what bulbs. And you feel it. the heat. And if you've ever, probably never been on a massive stage, but that audience of everybody looking at you, you feel that energy. You get a, you're like, whoa, it's like a like a, a, a radiator without the heat. You feel the, those eyes looking at you. And we walk out on the stage, and we have to make this curve towards the middle of the stage and then back out through the opposite inside and i'm going oh my god look at this uh, it, it's 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 you know orange and pink and purple and i could feel and it's nice and warm and we're walking through the desert and i could feel the warm sand between our toes well because we were in sandals well what had happened is the horses had taken shins and we all walked oh, through no! the warm sand between our toes <laughs> <laughs> And, and the audience, the audience was full aware of what was happening and what was. There was a lot happen. of things that happened. People's tops flew off walking through horse shit, and you would hear people laughing. You know what I mean? You know those opera queens knew every note and every step. Like, <laughs> you know, yeah. But it was uh, they were supposed to feed the horses on the schedules, and then they had a little cup by the tail. So God forbid if they pooped, the cup would take it and not on the floor. And they had to wait for the scene to end and and like sing dance around on the stage because you couldn't get somebody out like at the circus with a broom to sweep it up, you know, because you couldn't break the illusion that we were really in Egypt or wherever the fuck it was, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. That, 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 that's, that's my story. <laughs> that <laughs> needs story. that needs to be reenacted in the life of Man Parish. That's the documentary yeah, but, uh, that I'm ready I, to see. I, uh, so in my own self-promotion, I have some, I, people say you should write a book, write a book, write a book, and I'm too ADD and I had three different people come in and one person was like, the aesthetics of Mr. Parrish is conceptual. I'm like, I don't talk like that, you know. Oh, uh, God. Take your okay. balls and smile is the way I talk, right? So those didn't work out. So I decided to do, set up a camera and 10 minutes, no editing, just direct looking in the camera and tell mm-hmm. a story every day for a month. I actually went 10 days more. I had 40 stories. I broke them into seasons just so it makes it easy to digest. And I talk about everything from Madonna being my opening act to being a male prostitute. Uh, and I thought I had to sleep with Charles Nelson Riley and 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 uh, Paul Lind. Funny, funny story. Talk about- Oh, uh, man. Oh, God. Talk about Studio 54 coming down from the ceiling. Madonna was my opening act to be the scrim grace jones was having a birthday party and out in the audience michael jackson was there and a lot of people henry kissinger was dancing with a with a with a drag queen called putasa kind of famous in new york i don't know if you know that story and you didn't have cameras then but a press guy came in and the secret service took her away put brooke shields there and if you look online you'll find the picture of henry kissinger at studio 54 with brooke shields that was the night everyone so i got all these great stories and uh, uh i put them up on on, on youtube and uh, if you 
you like this shit, you can go there and take a look. But I, like I said, I want to do an underground, uh, call it NYC underground, and talk about glory holes and 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 subway too. In the men's room in the subway, you there was etiquette. So when you walked into a men's room, there's usually a little hallway. They had a, a, a heavy door with vents in it, and you could peek through the door and maybe somebody would bend it, and you could see kind of down the hallway. First, last person in was just unspoken. You you would stand guard, and you'd lean against the door, and everybody would be doing their thing in the men's room. And if somebody came down the hallway, you'd go, <clears throat> and everybody would run, scatter to urinals and stuff like that. And somebody would leave a urinal open, and everybody would scatter, you know, to a urinal. And then if you didn't hear water drop, she's a queen. But if Water drop, you know, you'd wash your hand and go, how about those Mets? You know, yeah, hey, you know, uh, you, you get laid last night, how was that pussy? And they would leave, and then you'd go back to the door and watch it, and then if somebody came in, you were you were next online. So there's all this great culture stuff. There's, you probably know hanky codes, but hanky codes were really big deals. Uh, do, uh, do you know hanky codes? Do you know familiar. what that is? I'm familiar, yeah. But yeah. A, lot of people don't, a lot of people don't. And you could go shopping and then look down. Oh no, no brown, honey. No, no, no. I'm not into no, no brown, no yellow today, dear. You know, thank you, but no, thank you. You're hot, but uh, we're not doing toilet scenes right now. So um, there were the uh, keys. Were your keys on your left side or on your right side? And and basket. So you know your dick was hanging in your pants. If you had trade, you'd wear no underwear and hang it down your leg. And you, 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 do you guys know I manage village people for six years? I'm not sure I was aware of that, actually, Manny. That's incredible. Yeah, I managed the village, YMCA, village people for six years. Um, uh, after they fell apart, uh, Randy Jones, a cowboy, uh, uh, contacted me and said, "You want? Uh, we want to produce the song. We go to Australia for a couple of months and at a time, and uh, we're doing a song. Would you Would you like to do it? I did it. It came out in Australia. He called me back weeks and months later. I said, oh, congratulations. The song's doing great. And he said, we're looking for a road manager and someone to help us put together our show. And I said, do you know anybody? I said, what does it pay? It's like $2,000, all expenses paid. You fly around the world. And I said, I'll do it. He goes, wait, wait, wait a minute. You'll do it? I said, well, yeah, I'm really not doing much musically now. And I got to tour the world with Village People for six years. I restructured their show. When we started, it was $1,500 for like a 30-minute act. And when we left, it was $35,000 for an hour and a half act. And I took all their stuff. I restructured it and worked with them. And, and you know, I was the first one awake, the last one asleep. And, uh, you know, they called me their road missy. Because I remember the first day I had such balls. We were at Newark Airport. And I, we had six guys going to Australia. A coach ticket must have been $5,000 a person, right? And I walk up and I see some queen at the, at, at the customer service and i went hey you know hey you know and he said and i said we're che checking in seven people and he's okay okay i said do you know who you're checking in and what do you mean i said that's the village people girl and like what and i said them over there, oh my god i recognize the must oh my god that's it and i said yeah yeah wait hold on a second let me get the guys to autograph you what's your name uh, uh, Stephen, all right. Hey guys, wink, wink. Just shut up and autograph this to Stephen. We love you. And blah, 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 blah. And he gave it to, oh my God, look, everybody. I got a bunch of people here. And by the way, 
any room up front for a couple of divas? And he goes, oh, hold on a second. Let me, okay, you got first class from, <laughs> from New York all the way to Australia, which would have been like a $10,000, $20,000 by six of us, you know? So, and, and then all the airline stewardess and the, and the, and the road and the, and, and the ground crew used to know us. So we'd sit up front when there was nobody up there and we'd bake cookies and tell road stories and stuff like that. So uh, I was their road ministry. Yeah, I, I got to travel the world. I was in East Germany a week before the wall came down and I was a hotel right by the wall when the wall came down the Berlin wall came down so I got to do a lot of great things we did an overnight to Japan on the, one of these TV show what's my line and it was Tabitha the baby from bewitch she's now grown up and there were two of them twins so we got to meet all these wacky people uh, I got to fly the Concord uh, uh, and then I was broke on food stamps you know with no money yeah and with my windows open living upstairs from my father's apartment and cars would come by blasting my music and I wasn't paid a on all that so like i said laid relayed parlayed and sue played but i'm glad this is a different kind of interview that i'm doing or or, or, or or talking about stuff because this is something that really needs to be you know brought out and discussed and i'm glad you guys are doing it yeah 100 i think I've what, what, do you, what do you need do you need do you need anything else so i can answer your questions no i think i mean i could ask you a million questions but i'll ask you one more question actually this is this will be top or bottom Top or bottom? No, I'm too. I'm too. Can we stop verse top? That fucking makes me insane. You're either a top or a bottom. A verse top is not a top. Ah! <laughs> You're. I, please continue your storytelling too, Mandy, because I uh, these rants are important, and they are. You'd be surprised. I think you'd be surprised how much they would land with younger gay men today. I think a lot of the frustrations that you're kind of expressing here, well, they don't see it from the same perspective. Obviously, they don't have the, the sense of history, but uh, I, I think you're, you're preaching to a choir. I feel like in some ways with uh, me and many others. I think if it, you don't have to, but if you're curious, there's a much richer gay history than you think. You tend to think queens are just. You know, uh, uh, what's fabulous and let's go get high or fuck or whatever. Uh, but there's a, a really rich political, social, and just historical thing that goes way I mean, look at World War II and the Nazis and gays. You're going to be mortified. You think AIDS was, AIDS were bad. I mean, they were persecuted just the same. And, and, you know, throughout, you know why gay guys are called queens? I don't. In England, it was the gay guys that took care of the royals. And they would whisper, girl, -uh, cross your legs, you know, no, no, pick you, pinky up with the T. No, use your left hand, not your right hand. Oh, you look fabulous, but hold on a second. There, you're better. And they go, oh, that faggot over there, she's really the queen. She's not the queen. And that's how that stuff. Fascinating. I did not know that. Because they ran the world, the queens ran the world, gay guys ran the world behind the scenes, and they were the queen. They, they, they were the, they knew more etiquette. Etiquette. Uh, I saw a royal documentary where they were talking about that the royal family only goes to school to learn about royal things, but when it comes to social things, they kind of learn about it a little bit. Oh, my grinder's calling. Hold on a second. <laughs>